Driving that coach. 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 And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Dropping That Culture with JD and AJ. Yeah, I'm JD. And I'm AJ. And I'm really liking these like uh, YouTube videos because the fact that like, people can actually get to see us and actually see I got the baby fro going right now. Which is this like, it's, it's it's short, but this is a fro for me. Dude, I haven't had this much hair in a very long time. You haven't had that much beard in a long time either. You trying to come after this? Go after the beard record? I don't know, maybe. It depends on how long. This is my quarantine look, so it depends on how long this quarantine goes. I'm not shaving until this shit's old. And, it's like, and my landlady was like, uh, like, why don't you start, why don't you, uh, start shaving your head? I was like, what do I got to look pretty for? It's true. Although exactly. you're still going to the office, though, don't you, for your work, or are you remote? So, uh, uh, no, I actually go to the office. So, like, like, I go, like, I go to work, I go home, go to work, I go home. That's okay. it. Take that, co-workers. He doesn't need to look pretty for you. No, I really don't give a fuck about what y'all are talking about. You're going to trim all this up, get all pretty again. Oh, yeah, I will. I will want to say all this shit clears up, hopefully, uh, soon. Got to make sure you look like your uh, your headshots. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, so it, it ain't but it – uh, it only takes maybe like an hour to get rid of all this shit. And then maybe I'll go to somebody professional, shape this up, shape it up, and keep it up. You know how long it gets. Uh, but yeah, that's that's enough about me and my hygiene during the fucking quarantine. <laughs> let's go ahead and get into this show, man. So uh, let's go ahead and start it off with uh, one of my favorite segments here on the show, Seven Degrees of Eddie Murphy, where I can match uh, any major American film star to the way Eddie Murphy would make seven movies. And of course, I see AJ smiling, so I better go ahead and get our Theme song. I think I got a good chance. You're interrupting the head. You're interrupting that shit. It, it froze. Alright, ready? <laughs> 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 well done. Thank you. Thank you. Alright, so what days you got for me tonight, man? Well, uh, this may or may not come up later, but I'm going to go with an oldie but a goodie. Natalie Wood. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Shit. Do I know that many fucking Natalie Wood? Fucking <laughs> fuck. <sighs> Is this another Mandy Moore? <laughs> I gotta, I gotta, I gotta look it up. I gotta look it up. Okay, so folks, I'm, I'm making it known right now. I'm actually looking up Natalie Wood to see if I can find a movie to match up with. So yes, AJ has stumped me so far twice. I want to get that. I want to get uh, Natalie Wood. But in the meantime, uh, go with somebody else while I look up Natalie Wood. Well, if we're gonna talk about Natalie Wood, then I should go with Robert Wagner. You can get you can get there with Robert Wagner. I get Robert Wagner. I get Robert Wagner. Okay, Robert Wagner was in. Yeah, I get him in one. Robert Wagner was in no no you know what I could go the route, but I don't want to go just like straight. Okay, you know what? Uh, yeah, but I, I can get him in one. Uh, Robert Wagner, of course, was in. I can't believe 
<laughs> uh, Robert Wagner <laughs> was in. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, I can't get him one without having to go to Rob. Okay, so uh, Robert Wagner was in uh, Austin Powers and Goldmember with Beyonce Knowles. Beyonce Knowles was in Dreamgirls with Eddie Murphy. It was pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sorry, I, 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 the original route I was going to go was Mike Myers, but I was like, do I want to go animated? Because you could. That was my thing. You just jump over one, too. Yeah, I was thinking, I was like, you know what? No, I don't want to go that route. Well, and the thing is, Natalie Wood is actually very, very, you know, connected, as it were, when it comes to the James Bond franchise. Yeah, I'm actually going to get into that a little bit later, too. Uh, well, and something I don't know if you know or not, she actually dated one of the scribes, um, Tom Mankiewicz, for a minute. I didn't know that. Back in the, back in the 60s, so. I, I, I didn't know. Old Mank. Yep. Old Mank got Wood. That's what's up, bro. <laughs> Go ahead, Mank. That's, that's what I heard from Tom, so, you know. Good job, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got, I got Natalie Wood. Okay. All right, all right, so Natalie Wood was in The Great Race with, yeah, uh, was in The Great Race with Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis was in, uh, yeah, 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 Tony Curtis was in The Count of Monte Cristo with uh, Louis Jordan. Louis Jordan was in Swamp Thing with Adrian Barbeau. Adrian Barbeau was in The Fog with Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis was in Trading Places with Eddie Murphy. Oh, that was good. I almost had you there for a second. You still had to look it up, though. Yeah, I, I admit, I had to look it up. So All right, one, one more deep cut. Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell. Oh, super easy. Okay. Uh, Bruce Campbell was in Spider-Man with Bill Nunn. Bill Nunn was in... Yeah. Bill Nunn was in uh, Do the Right Thing with Martin Lawrence. Martin Lawrence was in Life with Amy Murphy. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know who Bill Nunn is, uh, Radio Raheem and Do the Right Thing. The dude with the... No. Hey. That's, that's Bill Nunn. All right, you got there, man. It's three. I got the radio, Raheem, man. <laughs> What's crazy is I'm guessing the people who listen to our podcast they probably know Bruce Campbell, but most people are probably like Bruce Campbell. <laughs> yeah, Bruce Campbell, you know, Evil Dead, you know, Ash, Army of Darkness. Army of Darkness. You know. Yeah, Army of Darkness. Yeah, yeah from, uh, technically Dark Man. He had yeah. a cameo on Dark Man. Yeah. Killer, right, killer, yeah. killer comedic actor. All right. Why well, was Eddie Murphy? Cool. All right. <laughs> All right. So let's go ahead and move on to our next segment, WWBS. What would Busey say? And that's where I do a improvised rant as the also eccentric Gary Busey. So what is Gary ranting about tonight, AJ? You know, I got to be honest. I, I don't have anything for, for Gary for tonight. I was thinking about and thinking about but I, I couldn't come up with what I felt like was an appropriate prompt. And then as I was going through a little bit of my, my refresher research for the bond, I realized mm -hmm. 
what could be more interesting when it comes to him than lasers? Because that's a James Bond unique thing right there. I, I'd be curious. I'm sure Gary's got a thought too when it comes to lasers. Okay. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see what you got. <laughs> lasers. Oh, I love me some lasers. You know, when you take a take a big high powered laser, get yourself a small animal, strapped to some sort of flat surface, rig up the laser real nice, and have yourself a little James Bond session. You know, so uh, if a little uh, maybe a doggy, maybe a little kitty, you know, or if you want to go human route, find yourself a crossing guard or something like that. Now, somebody that, that most society would not really give a shit about, they went missing. And have yourself a little fun, you know. Also, I don't know if anybody's ever done this, aside from myself. You ever taken a laser to the face? It's amazing. It does wonders for the skin. What do you, what do you imagine? Also, it might fry your retinas and all the other shit, but, you know, those are just side effects. You know, those. But I'm telling you, man, having a laser straight in your face, looking in the eyes, man, it's like pretty much like looking at the sun directly, man. It's fucking nuts, bro. <laughs> Changed my life. You see my hairstyle, don't you? Yeah, lasers. It's fucking dope, man. Tack blood. <laughs> I don't expect it. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, he doesn't need crossing guards. <laughs> somebody, somebody, you know, society wouldn't give a shit about if they went missing. <laughs> At least in his world. In his world, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love WWB. I didn't like it at first, but I'm like, I love WWB as dude. It's fun. Well, By the I'm way, WWB. I'm glad you finally came around. <laughs> By the way, WWBS is AJ's idea. Yeah, well, and, and if you actually listen to the first or second episode, uh, originally tried writing rants in the voice of Gary, but we just found it was a lot more fun to let you extemporize. And to be honest, yes. we met in some way stranger places with the pressure of it being live. Yeah, especially, especially <laughs> the whole thing with uh, right. about the, uh, like, uh, not eating fish because I don't want to start war with the city of Atlantis. <laughs> Shit like that, man. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that might be my favorite rant. Because <laughs> I was like, I was pulling, I was like pulling hard. From the I was like, what the fuck can I do? Oh yeah, Atlantis. <laughs> and the most important thing of improvis uh, improvisation, yes, and doesn't yeah, matter how weird it gets, just keep going. Just keep it going. <laughs> just keep it fucking going. <laughs> All right, cool. So we got that out the way. Now we actually go going to go into our favorite segment here. Dropping that news. Dropping that news. And funny enough, I actually got some news. Like it's actually been a somewhat yeah, it's actually been a somewhat busy week in Hollywood, despite the fact there's nothing really going on. Zoom meetings. But yeah, yeah. Zoom, yeah a lot of Zoom meetings. Well, every every show is doing that. All the talk shows do it. You know, I, I look online whose line is doing it. Like the whose line people have a Zoom and uh, also the people from Reno 911 are doing the Zoom. Both of those are really fun. Which is funny enough, it's kind of production when all this shit hit the fan. Exactly. 
Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, like I said, folks, and actually, I think it's supposed to be debuting within the next few weeks, the new Reno 911. Yeah. But, yeah, check that out. And uh, also, but just going into the news real quick. Got some, uh, all right, cool. Uh, the first thing that actually happened today, uh, this actually got tagged to me this morning, was uh, they actually released the official title for Venom 2. Now, I've already spoken my piece on Venom. Um, I'm not that big a fan of the movie itself, but it was a box office hit. A lot of people do like it. It is what it is. Uh, whatever. But, because uh, like, the fact it was a box office hit, a huge one, too. Um, Venom is getting a sequel. And uh, for those of you who did not give, uh, not did not see the first Venom, I can give a fuck less as a spoiler alert. Uh, at the very end of the movie, there's a uh, post credit scene featuring a psycho killer named Cletus Cassidy. Uh, a lot of the comic book fans who know that character's name, Cletus Cassidy is Carnage. Basically like Venom, but with a lot less of a moral center. <laughs> so, like same powers, almost a uh, little, little more powerful depending on the interpretation. Uh, but him and like Venom are like almost like kin in terms of like, you know, they're both symbiotes. Like in some in, in some incarnations, and I believe like like on, like on uh, <coughs> excuse me, like on the Spider-Man animated series in the nineties, uh, Carnage is supposed to be like an offspring of the Venom symbiote, something like that. You know what I'm saying? So they connected. Uh, but like throughout the history, they've all you know they've both been together. They they usually have comic books together. They are usually against each other or working together. Usually against Spider-Man, well more often against Spider-Man, <coughs> but. Cletus Cassidy is a very important part of the Venom mythology, and as such, he's going to be, it's very clear he's going to be the next villain for this particular franchise. The, uh, the name of Venom 2 will be Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage. Yep. So, and then Woody Harrelson is the one that's playing Cletus Cassidy, so that's pretty cool. That's he did it. A little bit that they had him on, he did a decent job. Yeah. He can play crazy pretty well. Natural born killers, man. Although my favorite role of his is still from Kingpin. It's Munson. Oh yeah, with, with, yeah, with the fucking hand. <laughs> the rubber hand. <laughs> yeah, the fucking, the fucking stupid hand thing. Um, also, and uh, also, I commented on this yesterday. Uh, apparently, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, uh, Issa Rae from Insecure, and uh, Danny Garcia, who was the ex, the Rock's ex-wife turned manager. And she's also the manager of uh, Henry Cavill and a couple of other big-time celebrities. They are working together on a uh, new series on HBO uh, based around backyard wrestling. Now, if you're a kid of my particular generation, you remember the tapes of backyard wrestling. Hell, you probably went to some of the shows of backyard wrestling. But basically, just it's a makeshift goddamn wrestling ring in somebody's backyard. It's like a really hard mattress, some fucking ropes and some posts and shit. And then they have like music and they get like some chairs for a crowd. And it's basically young, uh, unsigned wrestlers going out there and risking their lives for the entertainment of like 20 people. But people like people tend to get it on video. And the more spectacular it is, the more viral it goes in terms of like, you know, how many people see it back now. I mean, this is back back so it's just basically you you were trying to get a, a VHS and later on DVD because I mean you couldn't couldn't really watch video on the internet. You get 
90 seconds of some kid falling down on his rollerblades. That was about it. Whereas this shit, they they go all out. And some of the more hardcore ones, they would do, like, ridiculous amounts of damage to themselves. Just to get oh, you get bob wire, razor wire, fire, glass, all kinds of crazy shit. Uh, power tools, all kinds of shit, man. They go nuts, man. And the blood and the gore. And it's like, oh, my God, this is real wrestling. Like, well, it's very dangerous. And, of course, unsanctioned and illegal. Uh, but uh, for what I'm yeah, for what, for what for what I'm seeing, apparently they're gonna be doing one uh, based on an indie wrestler who gets a little gets a little bit of money and starts a basically a backyard wrestling promotion out of his backyard. It's gonna be hip hop centric, and uh, looks like a great idea. Something I would definitely love to audition for. I tell you that right now. So yeah, we get some Bob Wire cuts. <laughs> I've done it before. <laughs> oh well, like, well, let me specify that I I trained very very briefly uh, to be a wrestler, uh, very briefly, <laughs> two days, and I, I just like they they just ran me through drills and shit. All I did was drills. I didn't really do anything wrestling wise. Just did like a bunch of calisthenics and drills. Not a shit they had us doing. It's like fuck this. So yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah, it's fucking nuts, man. So I, I I didn't make it, but like like because of the fact. It's just like stand up or a couple other things. Like if I tried it and I fail, I have a much better appreciation for the people who do succeed because I know firsthand that it's not easy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so well, I have a much. I, least, I have a great. Yeah. Well, I was just saying, at least you have a, a wider, you know, variety of experiences to draw from, both as an actor and then also, like you said, having that appreciation for people who commit to it and do really well. Exactly, man. So, like, more power tone, they do well. But that's going to be coming on HBO, apparently. So, like I said, it's basically the maker of Ballers, if you want to do advertising, the creators of Ballers and the creators of Insecure come together and they have this, whatever the name of the show is. I forgot the name of the show. I think it was in the article. Uh, the article is on Variety, on the Variety.com page, if you want to check it out. Uh, but, yeah, shoot, sounds like a great concept. I will definitely watch that shit. And I know both shows is going to have, like, sex and violence and shit, so I can definitely something to watch so, for sure and like i said again as an actor something i would love to audition well and then uh just switching gears slightly because it does impact on all that so the, the newest thing i've heard when it comes to um production this is what i'm seeing out of deadline i think is where i saw this article most recently they're looking potentially to restart production around september for most scripted shows in la uh which obviously sucks for a lot of folks that uh work production services like myself and you know, a lot of our colleagues and friends and everybody, but at least on the narrative side, they're kind of giving us a tentative start date. So we should be getting new content by the end of the year. Um, what you're probably going to see, depending on when they start lifting all the lockdowns across the country, mostly going to be a lot of unscripted um, because you don't need actors for unscripted or at least the actors you use most of the time. They're typically willing to go for stuff like that because they're not you know, generally big names, that sort of thing. Um, one other thing that COVID's done that's, uh, again, another article, I believe this was Deadline as well, uh, they were saying that we're in a situation now where um, sex scenes, kissing, stuff like that, according to some intimacy coordinators, which I guess that's actually a gig. Um, Maybe somebody's backing up some shit in your fucking vicinity. Yeah, just around the corner. I don't know what he's doing. Yeah. It's funny that he's backing it up while I'm, I'm talking about sex scenes in Hollywood, right? <laughs> anyway... Uh, <laughs> I'll, you know, I was just about to say that. It's all it's all timing, right? It's all timing. 
but anyway, they were, they were talking to a, an intimacy coordinator, which I've been around the business long enough. I didn't know that was a thing, but apparently that's a new job title. But they were saying that um, they're already getting pushback from from SAG and from some other um, you know bigger name performers that because there are concerns about COVID and stuff right now that uh, you may see them pulling back from any physical intimacy or any of that kind of stuff in the short term because they're concerned about spread of disease and actors and people are concerned about that. So it's going to impact. It'll be interesting to see how and how much, but it's going to be something for a minute there. An intimacy coordinator. That is an interesting title. <laughs> There's a new dream job for you. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna be fucking right here, and also you guys gonna be fucking over here. All right, now you guys gonna be fucking in that tree. Now you gotta be careful. We have those guidelines in terms of fucking in the tree, okay? All right, so telling a story just slightly out of school for a second. I I, uh, I met this fire marshal when I was shooting my thesis film. Sweet old guy, really nice dude. So whenever you're shooting certain locations, you're required to have a fire marshal there. If there's any chance you can have a wildfire or whatever, because we work with a lot of electricity, yeah. a lot of hot lights, right? Stuff can can catch on fire. So they're there yeah. to make sure we take the proper precautions. Well, anyway, this guy was telling me he uh, he got called out one of the first times he was working. It was a shoot um, in a barn in uh, at the the Disney Ranch, the Disney Movie Ranch up in the Santa Clarita area, and mm-hmm. it was a Korean movie company. And he said he got there because he was the oldest guy on set. There's a lot of cultural stuff. So they gave him his own trailer and they're treating him, you know, better than he'd ever been treated on a set because he's the oldest guy on set. So they're trying to keep him in his trailer when it's time to shoot. He's saying, no, 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 I gotta, I gotta be, I gotta be on set. That's what I'm here for. That's what I get paid for. So he finally gets onto set and he realizes that they're shooting a porn, that these, this guy and this girl, they're disrobed. They're, they're going to have sex right there and everything. And he's like, all right. I mean, I, as long as you don't put the lights where they're not supposed to. He said his PA that was assigned to him gets a chair and brings it around. It's like, no, 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 come over here. It sets him right at the one spot where he can see everything in the best possible. <laughs> and he's, he's this old, nice, sweet, like old married dude. And he's like, I mean, I was getting paid $400 to be there for the day. So. <laughs> Sit down and enjoy the show. <laughs> I, I don't I still I, I don't know anything beyond that, but I still remember just going like, damn dude, like that was like your your first movie. <laughs> and like, yeah, pretty much. Shit, that's dope, bro. <laughs> My movie was a coming of age tale about a little child that's got like pet chickens that he has to kill, you know, because they're it's the depression and they're poor and all this shit. I'm like, so this is kind of uh, down to you from what you're used to when it comes to barn scenes. <laughs> but that's anyway, funny. Back to the news. The only other piece of news I've got that's kind of interesting is Quibi. Uh, they've announced uh, a reversal. Obviously, it's going to have a lot to do with uh, COVID, people not traveling as much. But originally, mm-hmm. the content was only going to be available for viewing on mobile devices. Uh, hmm. Something I saw recently, they're going to allow it to stream in your home, at least for a limited time. And okay. if you know, I don't know if you know Quibi or not, if people know Quibi, but the interesting thing about them is compared to every other streaming service you can get, their content, number one, is formatted for your phone. So whether you're in landscape or portrait, the camera shifts. And so it's actually, I was talking with a cinematographer um, who did some work on it. He was saying it's kind of a pain in the ass because it changes the way they have to shoot. They have to keep both aspects in mind with everything they shoot. So it's mm-hmm. weird. Like they have to watch the angles extra above and to the sides. But anything mm-hmm. important has to basically happen in a little four by three section in the center. Really, really mm-hmm. weird for them. But um, the main thing that's different is everything they do short form content. So every episode I think is no more than 10 or 12 minutes long at the max. 
Because mm-hmm. the idea is if you're out, you know, shopping with uh, with your wife or something and she's in the changing room, you've got nothing to do for 10 minutes, sit down and watch an episode of the show. Um, which is kind of an interesting pioneering concept. It could work. I mean, it helps fill up those 10-minute moments people have in their day. But yeah. this lockdown thing, it's really thrown them through a loop because they've been, I mean, they've been building up content for the last year and a half. And this is supposed to be that big launch. And now everyone's at home. And why do you want to watch it on your cell phone if you've got a big screen, right? Well, I won't go so far as say it's revolutionary because more of adults, we don't do shit, do shit like that all the time. Yeah, but, like they, a lot of but they never designed the, this is the, where they're different. They never designed the content specifically for phones. So if you're, if you're watching oh, okay. you okay. the portrait, then you get the giant black bars at the top and bottom. I thought you meant the, the, the 10 minute thing was revolutionary, but yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Right. how you doing it? Yeah. It's revolutionary to design content specifically for the mobile space, both in terms of time and format. Because even though they did that, like Adult Swim had lots of little shorts, the reality is short film is the original format, right? Like you go back to the 19, what was it, 1910, 1912, right there when they first started yeah. them. Everything was short form. I mean, that's where Disney came from, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. It'll be crazy to see how it goes. I mean, it's got, if you look at their board and you see who's working with them, Whitman, you've got uh, Katzenberg. I mean, there's huge, huge names and lots of money behind it. So, I mean, they're not gonna let it let it die if they can help it. Um, but this this could be could be a major shift in, in how we design content and what we watch. So that's cool. Here's your news. All right. Okay. All right. So uh, we'll go ahead and knock that out. So we got a lot of stuff to cover here. But uh, that was dropping that news with JD and AJ. Dropping that news. All right, folks, you know what time it is. It's time to get into the meat and potatoes of this motherfucker right now. And I have meat and potatoes this week. Bond. James Bond. Now, this is a big thing for both me and AJ because we're both huge Bond fans. And also because the fact that AJ has a more intimate connection to the Bond franchise than I do. Speaking as how uh, AJ's mentor, the late Tom Mankiewicz, actually wrote three of the Bond films. Uh, I believe the world. I believe the exact films were uh, "Diamonds Are Forever," "Live and Let Die," and "The Man with the Golden Gun." Correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, cool. And that was in order too. Yeah. I like it. Thank you very much. I, I, I remember seeing that because I saw he did like three of them in a row, and I, I think all of them were like directed by Guy Hamilton, right? I don't remember if Guy. I, you know, I feel like Guy only directed um, "Diamonds Are Forever." Did he direct Roger? Roger Moore? And- <laughs> Yeah, he, he, I know. I know for a fact he's the director of Man with Golden Gun. Okay, I'd have to look it up again because I thought I read something about he he bailed. You know what? It was when he he bailed afterwards. That's what it was. Because it was okay. wasn't one going to be right after that after Tom left. No, it was uh, Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, that was that was when he bailed on it. No, that was Lewis Gilbert again. But we'll get into that a little bit later. All right, so let's go ahead and get started with, like I said, the uh, initial creation of Mr. James Bond in terms of his like initial characterization in the books. Uh, uh, James Bond was, of course, created by the late Sir Ian Fleming, uh, made his debut in uh, the novel Casino Royale in 1953. Uh, Ian Fleming himself actually created the character. He apparently been wanting to do a spy novel since World War II. Uh, he decided to do this uh, novel just to distract himself because apparently he was getting married at the time and he just wanted a, a distraction. So he created this character. Now, Bond himself is basically a composite of different commandos that Ian Fleming had known during his service during the, uh, in the uh, Naval Intelligence Division during World War II. 
he also, also real quick, we also talked about this a lot during the Spectre podcast. So if you want to go back and check that out, I'm not gonna go into too much detail, but just give you like little beats of it. Uh, the name James Bond, he actually got from an American ornithologist, uh, also named James Bond. Uh, very dreadful looking though. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, Ian Fleming was a keen bird watcher and was a fan of a, a book that Bond did called the book, the Birds of the West Indies. And he, like, he uh, apparently he wanted the dullest, most non-action sounding name ever. So he saw James Bond and was like, that's the one. <laughs> and man, did he change that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah so in terms of his uh, characterization of the character now he wanted initially uh he uh in, this is a quote from me and Fleming exotic things happen around or to him but he will be a neutral character now when I wrote the first one in 63 I wanted Bond to be an extremely dull uninteresting man to whom incredible things happen I want him to simply be a blunt instrument that was those are Ian Fleming's words but of course that's not at all what came about. Uh, and of course, but, uh, but, and it may, it's mainly Ian Fleming's fault because of the fact he actually infuses a lot of his tastes and uh, quirks into James Bond, his, some of his personal ones, like how certain foods he likes, certain women he likes, you know what I'm saying? Like uh, his like drinking and smoking habits. I think they say at one point uh, Bond smokes 70 cigarettes a day, which is ridiculous. But yeah, so that, that this stuff, that stuff is interesting because the fact most people don't do that shit. So, and then of course the fact he's like knocking down chicks left and right, like that's interesting. You know what I'm saying? So it, he, well, he yeah, he's, yeah, he's he's master of every weapon he puts his hands on, including his bare hands. That's interesting. Exactly, exactly. And also they also in certain interpretations he might be having encyclopedic knowledge of a particular subject, and that itself is interesting. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So. So yeah, he made a very interesting character whether he whether he went to or not. Now uh, the Bond books themselves were all bestsellers. Uh, he I think he wrote from between 1953 to 1966. The last two books, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun, and uh, it was a, one another one that was like a couple of short stories called Octopussy in the Living Daylights. So that's the name of the book. Both of them came out two years after he died in '64. So that's how popular Bond was. And like, like I said, the, 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 the actual franchise itself was like taken off at one point. Uh, I actually, I know I'm going to save that for, for later. I'll, I'll get to it's a little, little fun presidential fact about the Bond novels. I'll get to that. I know. Yeah, I'll keep that to myself. I'm going to talk about uh, that. But yeah, like I said, uh, say that again? I'm going to talk about hats when you talk about that. It makes the same point. Gotcha. All right. So, like I said, the Bond novels took off, and of course, uh, it gained a lot of fans. In particular, two movie producers, Harry Saltzman and Albert Covey Broccoli. Mm -hmm. uh, they both became big Bond fans and thought it would be a keen idea to turn the Bond films into a series of movies. They were right. Yeah, exactly. They were right, and they formed a, a company called Eon Productions. Uh, and actually, the holding company of that is called uh, Dan Jack which is actually taken from the names of both of the guys' wives, Dana Broccoli and Jacqueline Saltzman, so Dan Jack. Uh, and they have all the rights to the Bond franchise. They have had the rights pretty much since the, the early 60s. Uh, there have been some disputes. There have been some other uh, entities that have made Bond films other than 
Saltzman and Broccoli, but the official canon that most people know is the Eon Productions films. The you know so all the way from Doctor No to what's coming up uh, supposed to be coming up in the, this this coming year, uh, No Time to Die. So yeah, those are the official. Uh, it must be, uh, they pushed it back. Uh, wasn't it June, like June or July was original release day, and they pushed it to the end of the year with all this craziness. Yeah, plus traditionally a lot of the Bond films come out like November-ish. Anyway. Which makes sense because you get the holiday movie crowd. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, uh, like I said, there have been other interpretations of Bond, particularly uh, the very first live-action depiction of James Bond was actually on a show on CBS called Climax! Uh, exclamation point. Uh, and apparently they would do like reenactments of different stories on air, uh, live reenactments. And one that they did was a reenactment of Casino Royale. And uh, they made a few changes to uh, James Bond's character, particularly the fact that, they, that they, uh, they took him from a suave English gentleman to a somewhat suave American. <laughs> And he was actually played by actor Barry Nelson. So Barry Nelson is the very first live-action James Bond. And he, his name wasn't even James Bond. It was Card Sense Jimmy Bond. Well, Jimmy is more American. Very much more American. I mean, nobody's heard of, well, I guess I could say you have heard of James Dean, but then there's Jimmy Dean. True. Which we'll, which we'll, which we'll get to a little bit later. <laughs> um, <laughs> I knew you were going around, too. I knew it. All right, but yeah, uh, I think the only notable thing about the the TV movie, other than the fact it's the first James Bond, is uh, Peter Lorre is the chief in the movie. Yeah. That's crazy, yeah. So, Peter Lorre. But yeah, that was the very first live-action James Bond. Also, there was another, in, uh, well, there was another uh, Bond film made in the 60s during the same time as the Eon films, but this one was a comedy. Another uh, adaptation of Casino Royale, but this one, like I said, full-on farcical comedy and actually funny enough the storyline of that movie is that uh the the full-on original james bond who played who's played in the movie by david niven who was actually sir ian fleming's first choice for james bond was uh david niven and a lot of people don't know who david niven is david niven is uh he was the phantom and uh pink panther he's yeah and uh he was like the thief or whatever. Yeah, but freaking uh, David Niven was the first choice uh, for uh, James Bond, as according to Ian Fleming. And it, this this version of James Bond had retired. He had been doing you know his job for years and years and years, and now he's living a life of luxury, uh, basically as a private servant. Actually, they knighted him. He's Sir James Bond. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, the, because of the fact he is retired and he's a secret agent, they didn't want they want they didn't want to know that James Bond retired, so they decided to give the James Bond name to a bunch of other agents uh, just to keep the James Bond legend going. Yeah, like two of them. Pirate Roberts. Is that again? It's the Dread Pirate Roberts. More or less, yeah. Just keep the name going, keep the name and the reputation going. So I think two of them were, one of them was Woody Allen, I remember. Another one, I think the main one is Peter Sellers. So, <laughs> so they became James Bond. Uh, but let's go back to the to the original Eon productions now. Wait, you forgot, Eon, the, you forgot the comedy uh, version of James Bond. They did three of them in the 90s. Austin Powers. 
Uh, I was getting to it's that. Literally, it's literally a James Bond knockoff, like with comedian. With comedian. I was getting to. I was getting to that a little bit later, but yeah, I guess. As long as we, as long as we make sure to cover it, because that was. Uh, we're gonna cover. All, we're gonna, we're gonna mention Austin Powers. That's the name of the franchise, in case you don't know. So, AJ so subtly put it. Yeah, it's Austin Powers. <laughs> All right, so we'll get back to that a little bit later. Now, like I said, ER Productions actually set up what uh, many people consider the James Bond formula. Basically, the series of sequences that are synonymous with the James Bond movie franchise. Basically, every movie follows these beats. The locales may change, actors may change, circumstances may change, but they keep these general beats. Kind of like the Scooby-Doo formula that we had when we talk about Scooby-Doo in our podcast. It's basically been done in goddamn every James Bond movie, but it works, and it works well, mm-hmm. and it's time tested. Like nobody, nobody seems to really get tired of the James Bond formula. You, you know, knows that. I, I haven't. I've seen like let's say you see, you see one James movie. Technically, you see one James James Bond movie. You see them all, but like I said they change up a bunch of different shit in between them. They keep the formula. They keep the formula tight. There's individuals might get tired, but the population as a whole obviously hasn't because they still blow up the box office every time. Damn right. They do. Yeah, because they know it's a good formula. It works. Yeah. So let's go ahead and start off with that formula. First thing, which is synonymous, especially with the older films, the gun barrel sequence. Yes, sir. And then they brought it back. Yeah, that's right. Well, I was going to get to that a little bit later. But yeah, like, uh, well, in terms of the older films, what would happen is each movie would start with the gun barrel. This little white dot comes across the screen, and it would expand off. You see James Bond walking from right to left, just nonchalantly, looking good, and all of a sudden, boom, turns around to the camera, shoots, uh, shoots at the camera. The camera's supposed to be basically some assassin who's, like, looking, through, looking at James Bond from, like, a peephole, about to shoot him down, but James Bond catches him first. Then a, a red splash of blood comes down over the screen. The fucking little, uh, <laughs> the little dot starts to wave it down. And depending on the interpretation, some uh, like I remember the early ones, the little dot would just iris out. And then, uh, then of course, most of them, the dot comes down and basically uh, gives a little snippet of the first scene and then expands and you see the first. Well, scene. The, the other part though that you missed right there is that uh, it's a it's a gun barrel. You're looking down a gun barrel. Yeah, you're looking at a <laughs> barrel with a gun. Yeah. Barrel. And the, and the person that just kills whatever the assassin was. So, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, the gun barrel sequence was created by Maurice Bender. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And uh, he basically did it by creating a small pinhole camera through the barrel of a gun, so it became crystal clear. And like, like in terms of like the actual gun barrel itself, has been done by every Bond actor, but the original one was not uh, the original actor. It was not Sean Connery. Yeah. The original well, yeah. one... But, Go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say the original person to do the gun barrel sequence for the first like three movies was uh yeah was the first three movies was uh the stuntman Bob Simmons. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It was the first three. They just yeah, the kept, kept, the, kept the original essentially. It, it actually, if you look at those original ones, you don't really see his face; you just see the hat and you see him in silhouette and shit. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that, there's that. But then around Thunderball. They do it again with Sean Connery this time. And Sean Connery, you know, does the whole get down. But when he turns, he kind of stands like kind of weird, like, like weird, un, 
stated little uh, posture or whatever. All the same shit happens. And also, uh, he's wearing a hat. So, yeah. Because Bob Simmons wore a hat in the original one. But it just kept that going for a little bit. And then after that, I think that ran for, I think that ran for like... Well, that, well that was basically all of the rest of Sean Connery's movies. Well, but there's <laughs> when you wear a hat, half the problem is when you take it off, it, it takes your toupee with it. So that's get to that a little bit later too. So I'm actually getting that to soon as we get to Sean Connery. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing, yeah. And like I said, they changed it again. They changed it for after like I remember the first rock I mean no, after Sean they did the George Lazenby one. And yeah. George Lazenby goes all the way down to one knee and shit like, yeah. like you're doing too much. <laughs> you're doing way too much for <laughs> But the same shit, he's walking around, got the, got the nice suit on, got the hat, and then he goes down to one knee. The gun barrel shit goes down. I think the only I think that's the only time where they actually do the introduction with the gun barrel shit. So you have the, they stop in the mat midway and it does the Paris sauce when they are broccoli presents. That's the only time they ever did it. Yeah. Uh, then they did it again for Roger Moore when he came on. Uh, Roger's the first one was uh, Roger in a blue suit doing the Mankiewicz ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Roger was in a blue suit, blue business suit, and he stops. He uh, he does it with two arms, which is like the first time they did that. He uses one arm to brace the other arm, which is you know very very dainty. <laughs> so uh, he did that, and then of course uh, they redid Roger again. Yeah, yeah, that shit. They redid Roger again, starting with the Spy Who Loved Me. And this time they uh, put him in a tuxedo, and he's standing up right, still doing the two, two-hand thing with the gun. Uh, not really going as hard as some of the other people. He just pretty much just turns around and stands there, you know what I'm saying? But they used that intro for the rest of Roger's movies, which is like, I think, five more movies. And I think that's the most they ever used with the same gun barrel sequence for any actor. But why repeat it? If it works, I mean, it just costs more money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. And of course, they did it again with Timothy Dalton, and uh, again, again, and again with Pierce Brosnan. Uh, same thing uh, for for both of those guys. They used the same gun barrel for for all of their movies or whatever. The only difference is in Pierce Brosnan's last gun barrel sequence, they added a CGI bullet. It's for die another day. So they did the same gun barrel sequence. He fires at the camera. A lot of stuff on his last movie, didn't they? Yeah, uh, but uh, they fire a C-drop bullet at the actual gun barrel thing. And then, and then uh, what we're gluing to, they used the gun barrel at the beginning of most of the original uh, Ian, uh, the Ian Productions movies. But then with this soft reboot, Casino Royale, it was the first time they actually incorporated the gun barrel into the actual story. Because you don't see it at the beginning of the Daniel Craig one, the Casino Royale. You see him having this big fight sequence or whatever. The fight ends, and then uh, as he's reaching for a gun, a assassin comes to get him, but then Daniel turns around and shoots at the guy, and then you see that that is the gun barrel. Yep. The, and then saying the blood comes down. And then after that, uh, they did the uh, gun barrel sequence after. Uh, for, some, for yeah, some reason, they did it after, like for two movies. Yep. But Quantum of Solace and Skyfall, they did the gun barrel after, at the end of, of the movie, like as the movie ends. Uh, both of them, Daniel Craig. And then, but they started back in the front again with Spectre. That's at the beginning. So, so I'm, I'm assuming at the beginning of No Time to Die, it'll be the gun barrel. I mean, who, who knows what they're going to do with this one? There's a lot of speculation on it, uh, especially since it's Daniel Craig's last one. Yeah. Oh, they don't kill him off. But you know, we'll see. We'll see. Like they, they've done weirder shit before. 
Uh, and then, like I said, after the gun barrel, the pre-title sequence. Now, usually uh, it has like James Bond, like in the middle of some mission. Like uh, a lot of times the mission is, or, like, or it'll show like the bad guys committing a theft or some kind of crime before it. Wait, but hold, but hold on though. That, that opening title sequence is important because yeah. every single Bond film, whatever the Bond film is, they use that opening title sequence as an opportunity to, as we talked about before, right? Setting the table, right? So every one of them has a completely different setup. The only thing that seems to be standard is there's usually at some point women in silhouette because obviously, you know, James Bond's a guy who can get any woman. And, you know, he's, I think if I remember right from the time he showed up to the time that he, uh, well, to where we are after Spectre, he's bedded like 52 women and he's killed like 400 people. So there's always a combination of violence and you know sexual women so there's that sexualization of stuff that's going on but the bigger piece that varies each one but it's still the same because it's there they're letting you understand okay so in this one because we're going to show you different bits and pieces of animation this is going to be occurring in morocco or this is going to be occurring in skyfall right it's going to be actually up at, at james bond childhood home there's all those different pieces to kind of help you get an idea this is what we're getting into Actually, I was going to say, you kind of jumped the gun a little bit. I was talking about the pre-title sequence, where they had the adventure before the title sequence. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I was referring to. I, I was going to get to the title sequence. But you, already, you already explained it. Hey, I, I was worried that we missed it there. I was like, well, hold on, dude. Like, that's a... That's no, a no, 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 no. Yeah, I, was, I was going in order. Like, you got to go to Gun Barrel, pre-titles, then titles. You already skipped the title, so I'm going pre-titles back a little bit. Sorry. Sorry. Continue. Yes. <laughs> back to pre-titles. As I'm like saying, on your info. All right, so. <laughs> all right, so the pre-title sequence, like I was saying, like usually it has it has James Bond like in some in the middle of some adventure. A lot of times it's unrelated to the actual movie. Sometimes it is related to. The movie. It just right. depends on you know, what's going on with it. Or sometimes it will show like the bad guy committing a crime or something, somebody being killed. Uh, and then like, but like I said, most of them usually have James Bond in the brace of some woman, and then some shit happens where like she turns out to be like an enemy agent or yeah. some crap like that. Like like the spy who loved me, where he's like in the shack with his chick, like he like gets a message, I gotta go. As he leaves, the girl like hits a little radio. It's just that. It's just nothing. Next thing you know, some people start killing them. Yeah, I mean, it, it basically, basically the easiest way to look at it is it goes one of two ways. Either it's essentially, basically, in some of them, it's the inciting incident, right? So, like, the experience in, uh, was a Casino Royale with the parkour chase when he's in, like, Morocco or in Africa, wherever it was, and he's chasing that guy after the mongoose cobra fight. Like, yeah. it's going to be the inciting incident for everything else that occurs. Or it's basically just a little tag to let you know, hey, in between the last movie and this movie, he was still out doing some stuff and you just caught the end of the last one and we just didn't give you all that. We're not making a movie out of that one because it wasn't interesting enough to carry a whole movie, but James Bond's still been out there doing James Bond things, right? Actually, I'm going to use your guys, two of your guys' uh, intros as examples. Okay. Like, Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. You see, like, uh, people getting their ass kicked by a person you assume is James Bond. <laughs> you don't see his face at first, but he's like, Beating the shit out of a bunch of people, like hunting down, all, yeah, he's hunting down Blofeld. He's like all these different people, like getting ass with Like, where is he? Where is he? Like, Cairo, and then he goes to the Cairo and sees some other guy. This guy playing cards, or whatever. He's like, hit you, turns around, pops. Where, where is he? Like, and then you see the girl, Ask Marie. Yeah, you see the girl. You maybe you get a full reveal of uh, Sean Connery is back as James Bond. Like, who are you? My name's Bond, James Bond. And then he uses a bikini top to choke the shit out of him. 
And actually, I looked at that shit yesterday. You see Tit. I, I, I didn't notice that. I'd have to watch it again. Yeah, uh, Hulu has a very, very good high-definition copies of the Bond films. So when he does that part, you see Tit. There were, there were a lot of wardrobe malfunctions in that film we can get to later. Yeah, you see Tit a lot, especially in Diamonds Are Forever, because like, uh, you see Tit again uh, when uh, old, old girl, well, we'll get to that later, but uh, old girl Lana Wood is in that damn uh, water or whatever, in that yeah. sheer-ass dress, she locked Tit. Yeah, oh, oh, uh, was it O'Toole? Plenty of O'Toole. That's O'Toole but of course you are. <laughs> well, so just just to do it out of order for half a second, since we're talking about that scene anyway, um, yeah. the producers and everyone promised her, hey, you know, this you'll, you'll, you're probably going to get seen by the crew and the filmmakers because, you know, this is we're, we're throwing you in a pool and this whole thing. So, but they said it's at night. So you don't have to worry. People aren't going to see you. It's going to be at night. But of course, oh, yeah. they shot it in Vegas at night yeah. at a hotel. There so was no such thing as night. Everybody night. saw her. And it was one of those things that she was actually, from what I understand, she was pretty, understandably so, pretty upset with the producers afterwards. But, I mean, yeah. you know, it really wasn't the worst moment of her entire life. We could get into that later on. I mean, it was just, it was something. And, you know, as far as bad stories from 60s, 70s, and movie making goes, yeah. not that bad. Not that bad. I, I put it that way. I mean, it's just, you know, what does that say about how bad it was? Uh, that's a different discussion. But, mm-hmm. anyway. Um, yeah, there was. It definitely pushed the bounds for stuff that we're calling PG thirteen today. True, and uh, like AJ talked about earlier, when you skipped over my ass, the title sequence comes right after the pre-title sequence, and like he was alluding to, usually it has a lot of like scantily clad, well, pretty much nude women, or like uh, women that are like suggestively dressed, or always a silhouette. You know, you don't you ever see full on nudity. Uh, but they are new. You can very clearly see they're new. And, uh, like, you see, like, certain things, like, uh, covering body parts, like, and then, like I said, a lot of the imagery in it can be connected to the movie. Like, I remember, what was the one, um, uh, Thunderball had naked chicks swimming in the water because most of that movie was, uh, like, had a lot of underwater sequences. What about uh, Moonraker? <laughs> yeah, Moonraker, oh, my God, had, like, chicks and naked chicks in space. <laughs> Widely accepted as the worst Bond movie ever made. Moonraker? Yes! Dude, what's Moonraker in the Bond franchise? I'm gonna, you want? I, got, I, got, I got to disagree with that. But All right, which one's worse? I really hate to do your boy like this, but the man with the golden gun. No, I can't go there. I can't the, go there. The movie, I'm sorry, the, the, the villain is great. Uh, the movie itself is trash. I'm sorry. And, but I'm saying compared to Moonraker, you're saying Moonraker's not trash? Some crazy asshole who's got a space... It's a trash. <sighs> and he's going to recreate it, the human race? They did, the, they, they did the same shit. They did the same shit a movie before. Just on the sea. Let me just put it this way. Let me put it this way. When Mike Myers sat down and said, hey, we need to make fun of James Bond, at what point did the man with the golden gun come up but immediately, an entire fucking sequel was about Moonraker. Moonraker, yeah, I know. He's in my corner on that one. Mike Myers agrees with me. That is the worst Bond film ever made. I won't go so far as say it's the worst Bond film. The old concept is utterly fucking ridiculous. That's yes, I do agree with that. 
That, that, yeah, I agree with that. But I'm just talking about pacing and watching the movie. I said, man, I said, the man with golden gun is the worst one. Even as bad as some of the, but but it, but it had my favorite Bond villain, Scaramanga. That's my favorite Bond villain. So you're excusing the utter ridiculousness of the entire movie for one character? Yes. This is exactly, exactly what I'm doing. That is exactly what the fuck I'm doing. All right. Yeah, because Good Night was a horrible character. Very Good Night was a horrible character. Here's Fucking a, here's half. J.W. Pepper was a horrible character. I'm sorry. Here's half the problem with Moonraker. He's blending genres at that point, right? Because now we're dragging sci-fi into spy stuff and spycraft. Like, even as ridiculous as some of the James Bond shit got and as, like, comic booky mm-hmm. some of that shit got, like, like we were talking about before, the fucking ice car in uh, Pierce Brosnan's last one was the... Uh, yeah, that other day, yeah, another day. Like, even as bad as that got, it wasn't mm-hmm. full all the way jump the shark in the Moonraker territory in terms of ridiculous premise. Oh, 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 you want to talk about jumping? How about the whole shit with the bridge and the... That's in the man with the golden gun, motherfucker. Not in Moonraker. Yeah. That was bad. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I would even be so willing as to put man with the golden gun at the second worst. But I told you the bad. I don't think I I, I won't put it on Moonraker. But it's like, well, and again, how much of it is writing, how much of it is execution? That's I was nothing I was gonna go. Guy Hamilton was he, was he was exhausted and he was done. Plus, like I didn't like I didn't like mean Roger Moore. It didn't work. <laughs> no, mean Roger Moore. <laughs> mean Roger Moore did not work because he was trying to be Sean Connery. And he even said, the, I, love, I love, like I said, we got to watch the, the commentaries with Roger Moore when he talks about his movie. Even he said, like, I did not, I was not comfortable doing this shit, especially when he's like supposed to be like beating Maude Adams and shit. Like, Roger Moore doing that? Like, oh. Well, but that, that goes back to the core of who Bond is and, and what Bond needs to be. And this is what Tom always said. And this is why I like Daniel Craig so much because he nailed it the way he described it, right? What you need in a good James Bond is you need that, as Tom always referred to it, it's this bastard quality. You have to be able to, to have a character, have an actor portraying this character where in one scene, he can be making passionate love to some woman and then catch out of the corner of his eye that there's an assassin who's about to shoot him, spin her so she gets shot, he gets away scot-free, and in the next scene, you still like him. Sean Connery had that. Daniel Craig had that. Sean Connery did that that exact scene a couple times. That's what I'm saying. Not only that, but Sean Connery roughed up some chicks a couple of times. Oh, my God. He he beats a chicken like – I think he beats a chicken like every one of his movies. Daniel Craig gets pretty close in a couple of them, and I'm just saying. Close, like, but but he's, he's full on like that's what striking I'm, women. Part of it too, though, is Daniel Craig's in a in a different time, right? I mean, you can't get away with the shit that you did back then. But Hell no. nothing about Daniel Craig's portrayal that has you question that if it came down to it, yeah, he's gonna slap the shit out of her to get the information he needs. Because at the end of the day, it's all about you know king and country for him, right? Like he's gonna do what needs to get done. Roger Moore. Well, not a bad Bond. Yeah. Doesn't have that bastard quality. Same thing with Pierce Brosnan. Like, Pierce Brosnan's definitely, like, you know, the jewel thief kind of suave guy. Like, I could see him maybe playing around the edges. You don't really see him slapping a chick around to, to get some info out of her. Or, I mean, you, you don't even really see him being in that position to sacrifice her for himself. He just doesn't, he doesn't exude that. 
Now, as far as uh, who did the title sequences, now for the original ones, most of the original Eon ones, from like the first one down all the way to uh, License to Kill, that was Mark Spender. He used the one that initiated the title sequences. And then he got, then uh, when uh, Mr. Bender passed on, uh, it was left to uh, Daniel Kleinman, uh, who did most of the ones from Pierce Brosnan on, on, on the way down to Daniel Craig now. And uh, there was one where he didn't do it. I think Quantum Asylum, it was another studio called MK12 that did the title sequence for that. Now, as far as like the song going with uh, the title sequence and stuff, it usually has the title, it's actually almost verbatim a rule, has to have the title of the movie in the song, even if it don't make no fucking sense. Uh, a lot of, yeah, because you listen, you, you look at the lyrics of some of these songs, like, what the fuck are these talking about? <laughs> But uh, my favorite one, especially of the older ones, is Diamonds Are Forever. Diamonds Are Forever is pretty solid. Um, Living Let Go. Yeah, the Shirley Bassey one. Yeah. Yeah. Because so. like, her, her lyrics like is like a jilted woman who prefers diamonds to the profit, to the company of men, which is understandable. I can, I can get behind that song. Plus, the song is just great. Yeah. And she's a fan, fabulous fucking singer. Of course, she did Go Finger and all that <laughs> shit. Tom Jones is my favorite because you hear the top because every time I hear Tom Jones, I think it's not unusual. But him doing like Thunderball, Thunderball, <laughs> you know, it was like a little inflection thing at the end of the success. <laughs> <laughs> Is me so he gets less. They call him the winner who takes all and he strikes like thunderbolt. And when he does this shit at the end, apparently he passed out when he does the, the, the holding the note at the end. Ooh, like thunder. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> dropped up. Apparently, Shirley Bassey did too. When she, when they would do the, the the big thing at the end where they hold the note. I love when I love when uh Weird Al made fun of that shit in Spy Hard. <laughs> his head explodes. He holds the note super long and his head explodes. <laughs> You know who didn't do that, right? Didn't pass out? Adele. <laughs> oh, hell no. Oh, that, that, girl, that girl can hold the note. <laughs> yeah, she killed it, man. Hell, Skyfall, yeah. Skyfall of all of them is probably my, my top favorite. Diamonds Are Forever yeah, second, and Live and Let Die is my third. Live and Let Die is a uh, so. I have favorites. Like uh, I like Duran Duran of YouTube Kill. The movie's not great. And like you see very, very clearly you can see very clearly Roger Moore's way too old to be doing James Bond. But like freaking like the that shit is killer though. Like I listen to the car like dance into the fire. Oh shit. The gift you for me. Dance into the fire. Like yo, this shit go up. <laughs> <laughs> That was the other shit. I like the, the Carly Simon. Nobody does it better. This is, it's very appealing. Like, uh, nobody does it better. It's kind of like, to me, the unofficial James, Roger Moore 
James Bond theme songs. Nobody does it better. Right, fair enough. Yeah. And of course, we talk about the title songs. Only two have won Oscars, and it's basically just the more recent two: Skyfall by Adele and Sam Smith, uh, "The Writings on the Wall." In fact, they both won the Academy. The Writings on the Wall. It's, in my opinion, it's one of the worst Bond Bond songs. Yeah. Because it it just drops the energy too much. And the other thing too, I'm gonna say about it, as far as like the Academy stuff goes, I think yeah. that if you really look at the history of who's winning and when it comes to original song for, for, for pictures, that whole deal, um, you kind of end up in a situation where you realize, okay, the people who are voting, by the time you become a voting member of the Academy, you're, you're in the industry for like 10, 15, 20 years minimum. So the voting age, the guys have been doing it, been doing it longer. So I almost think to a certain extent, it's a nostalgia thing, but they're voting on new stuff. So stuff that gives them a nostalgia hit is going to bring mm-hmm. them back. So when you start having Bond songs, they can give that are good. I mean, they're 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 good for what they are. That's what I was just laughing at the, when you say the nostalgia. I just wonder who got nostalgia hit from uh, it's hard right here for a pimp by Three Six Mafia. That's an Oscar winner. Who got nostalgia hit from that? Maybe one of the voters of the category was a pimp one day. Like, you know what? This is me. I think me <laughs> too. Thought of, thought of. A lot of voting members of the academy may have been pimps in one way or another. Hey, it's hard out here for a pimp. This is me. This is my story. <laughs> or Eminem, Lose Yourself. Same thing. That kind of thing. Yeah. Oscar winner. Maybe. <laughs> who, got, oh, who got nostalgia here from uh, Say You, Say Me, but Lionel Richie? Oh, come on. That's Lionel Richie. That is nostalgia. Say you, say me. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, maybe I'm wrong. I, I just uh, okay, I, don't okay. know, I don't know why the writing on the wall would have won otherwise. I don't get it either, but yeah, Skyfall, I'm not a fan of this. Skyfall. Yeah, Skyfall, Skyfall song is incredible. Fantastic. Yeah. It's a fantastic film. It's a fantastic opening song. It puts the energy right where it needs to be for that film. Right. Honestly, right. you know, I didn't think I was going to like any of the new Bond films more than Casino Royale because it was a great reboot. But Skyfall, man, it, it was a whole nother level. You, we've talked about it it's, before. It's, it's, it's because of the fact Quantum of Solace came out after that. Quantum of Solace is not a great movie. Quantum of Solace is not, is not great. And to be honest, there's stuff that I don't like about Spectre because it starts getting a little bit back towards some of the, the almost comic booky kind of over-the-top yeah. side of stuff when it comes to the science of things. And, and that kind of it, it rubs me the wrong way because the thing I love about the best, what I think are the best Bond films is that they're they're kind of a hyper realism. Yeah. I mean? so. mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll give you that. Uh, now going back to the actual format itself, uh, next up would be a scene where James Bond flirts with Miss Moneypenny. I always thought sort of flirting with him and Miss Money. And like more often than not, and especially in the older ones, he would have the hat and he would throw the hat on the goddamn uh, little hat stand or whatever, kind of show how how cool he is. Neil coming in, start flirting with Miss Money Penny and shit. Uh, the first, the first and longest serving Miss Money Penny was Lois Maxwell. She, I think she did this shit for like sixteen movies. To the point where she was, it was like, come on, man. like at this point. Hey, James Bond. I'm just saying, like, but look, I was looking at Miss Money Penny, I'm like, he is not gonna smash her. Just give it up at this point. Have you been to England? <laughs> No, she went from like she went from a nice looking lady to she looked like Margaret Thatcher towards the end. 
Look, all I'm saying is if you spend any time in England, you might have a difference of opinion in terms of, hey, she still looks pretty good. I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry about, from hey, I'm just saying it's all about contrast. You spend any time there. It's not like L.A. You're jaded. You spent too much time in L.A. with all these hot girls walking around. You spent a little bit of time in England. You're like, hmm, okay. <laughs> We'd like to shag and have, perhaps have some tea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> Would you like some scones and perhaps a blue job? <laughs> kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Get some of that Thatcher, girl. Get some of that Thatcher. Oh, my God. Oh, king and country. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. That was good. That was really, I wasn't expecting that. That was really good. For King of Contracts. Terry, I don't. Like, like, you say, I think the shit he says in the movie, oh, the things I do for you. <laughs> I believe one of the bond, yeah, it's Sean Connery. Sean Connery's one of the things. Oh, the things I do. Well, got to do Sean Connery. In the Sean Connery voice, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, he flirts with Miss Money Penny. Now there were three, four actresses that actually played Miss Money Penny so far. Lois Maxwell, pretty much through Connery, Lazenby, Moore. Then uh, when Moore left, so did Lois Maxwell. So they brought in a new uh, Miss Money Penny, Carolyn Bliss, who did it for two movies with Timothy Dalton. And then they brought in another new Money Penny when uh, when the next bond left. Hey, Money, yeah, and then um. Yeah, when they brought him for Pierce Brosnan, that was a Samantha Bond, who actually I think this well, no, I take uh, Samantha Bond, who's really a saucy Miss Money Penny, and the most current one is the one we know now, uh, and she's black. Uh, Naomi Harris is the current Miss Money, and actually they actually gave this Miss Money Penny a backstory that she was an ex spy, uh, ex field agent, but she has a mishap where she accidentally <laughs> damn near killed James Bond. He's a horrible. <laughs> Horrible shot, and she's like, you know what? Well, actually, yeah, I'm going so far to say she's horrible shot. It's like she put in a horrible position. Because M told M pretty much told her, take the fucking shot, even if it kills Bond. And she took it anyway, even though she did have uh, clear, you know, she had a clear uh, shot of the assassin. And because of that decision, she decides to give him field work. She and could have taken the shot into the air if she really was only going to hit Bond and not hit the uh, Batman that he was in the middle of beating the hell out of on top of the train. That's true. That is true. I'm just saying, I mean, look, from, I have zero military experience, but from some friends that I have that have done things like that, uh, communications sometimes fail at certain times and you might not, oh, the communication was garbled. I'm just saying, like, at a certain point, like, you have to make, yes, she's telling you to do one thing, but you've got to make a decision for you and your team in the moment, right? There's that old saying, trust the man on the ground, trust the person on the ground. Uh, if she really truly is like, my only shot is to shoot Bond and I'm not gonna kill the other guy. Maybe I don't shoot Bond and I wait. True, she did that. All right, that cool. next move, yeah, that's cool. Well, uh, next moving on uh, will be him getting his assignment from M in M's nice ass office. He always had a nice office. Well, yeah. With the, with the, yeah, with the door with the cushions on the shit. I always, I always love that door. 
Yeah, the leather, the leather, leather cushions. Make sure people can't listen. Yeah. Oh, that was, that was a, that was those four. I thought just fashion. Yeah, yeah. Because if it's a hardwood door, if somebody mm-hmm. put a glass up to it or something, you can theoretically uh, hear it on the other side. But if you put something that's fabric and thick, it's going to absorb the sound wave, so it won't won't be heard on the other side. But yeah, Bond comes into M's office. Like uh, M hands him his paperwork, saying, "Hey, we have this assignment, Operation Undertow, and for, you know all the different operations and shit." And more than that, he usually gets some Bond shit about you know you're late or like stops dallying around with all these women, you know that kind of shit. Like you can tell very clearly that M wants to be Bond, <laughs> but he always gives him gives him shit like a like a like a parental like a, like a parental figure, like fucking like you should not be doing this thing, but like. At the same time, you know this is the best guy we got. So, yeah, give him a little lead. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, but yeah, uh, M is always stuffy. You know, uh, Bond, do come back in one piece, will you? Try not to bang. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I like uh, of the M ones or whatever. I like the one that Mank did uh, from. Uh, and they have a golden gun where they, he gets the golden bullet or whatever. And it's like, you would pay, and Bond's like, you would pay a million dollars to kill me. Outraged chefs, you know, like, outraged chefs, jealous husbands, <laughs> insulted tailors, you know. <laughs> the list goes on and on, Bond. <laughs> yeah. And I also like the one from Russia with Love where he's talking about, like, uh, uh, like uh, where he's like, talking about the girls he's ever been with before. And like, he, he like, listened to a recording. He was listening to it too. Well, uh, there was one time in him. Well, him and I had a very interesting experience in Japan. <laughs> so, so it was it was got down with him. So, yeah, it can get a little more uh, creepy when you start talking about Judy Dench. <laughs> and like, and funny, funny enough, you see a dude in her bed in Casino Royale. Like, like, like she getting down. Yeah, but that's supposed, like, that's supposed to be like her her husband or something. Because doesn't she when Skyfall doesn't she say that her late husband was a fan of? Oh yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's true. So that's supposed to be her husband in that one, I think. So uh, M was played by, of course, uh, for the most times was uh, Bernard Lee, who played him for uh, who played him from '62 uh, to Moonraker. But then, of course, Bernard Lee got ill around the time of uh, For Your Eyes Only, and he actually passed away. Now, out of respect for the character and for the actor, uh, in Four Yards Only, when they ask, he asks where M is, they say M's on leave, and that uh, well, the chief of staff is taking his place. They just have another actor just doing it. They don't. They, they purposely leave M open for the time being, and then of course they resume M the next movie with uh, Robert uh, Brown John, I believe is his name. Uh, he does the rest of the Roger Moore movies, and then up to the Timothy Dalton's. I think there's like four movies in total. Yeah, uh, yeah. where he's uh, M. And then, of course, the big change that everybody knows now, Judy Dench becoming M for Pierce Brosnan's Bond. And basically up until two movies, like a movie or, a movie or so ago, uh, she was like M for like a good little bit from like 95 to about 2012. And uh, yeah, and they actually gave, I think I think they gave uh, Judy Dench's M more, much more of a backstory than any of the other M's. You got way more screen time. It was a massive, it was a massive shift, and it was to the point where, like I told you before, by the mm-hmm. time I got to Quantum of Solace, she was driving me nuts because it was it was becoming more the M show than it was yeah. the Bond show. You know what I mean? 
but Judy Dench is such a damn good actress. They like write more for Judy Dench. You know what I'm saying? I mean, here's so. the thing: if we're gonna talk about Judy Dench, like Notes on a Scandal is a great fucking film. Like she's a killer, killer actor. She's she's the English Meryl Streep, right? Like there's no yeah. question the woman's got chops. The question in this situation is: Am I sitting down to watch Judy Dench, or am I sitting down to watch James Bond, who is uh, yeah. Daniel Craig? Right. Yeah, yeah, but uh, they actually in, in, involved him in two of the Bond movies. Uh, the world is not enough, and uh, of course, Skyfall. Both of those, the social plots of both of those movies are generally tied to him yeah. and things things in M's past. So, because like I said, they they uh, kill off M in 2012, and now the new M, Gareth Mallory, where they actually the first time we actually give a full name for him. Uh, yeah, Gareth Mallory, and is played by uh, Ray Fiennes. And uh, I, I actually like Gareth. I actually like Mallory and Skyfall. I think it was a good choice. Yeah, and I and I like I like Ray. He's a, he's a great choice for him. I love what they're doing with the character so far, and even his his role in Spectre was great. Exactly. So I give it up to Ray Fiennes, the current M. Now after that, he gets his mission. He goes down. And he has a technical technical uh, talk with Q. And of course, I always everybody loves the Q setup. Like it's usually like a lab somewhere with like they're testing all these ridiculous fucking experiments and shit. And you can see like gun put guns into like different types of shit. Like like for like a uh, they had like a gun and like a fake person. They had guns and like fucking cameras. They got like a magnetic fucking uh, table that could chop off people's heads and shit. And uh, all the different types of cars. And of course. Uh, Desmond Desmond Llewellyn as M. Hello, double seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes over to the games in their watches and yeah, and the magnetic watches and shit like that. Yeah, laser beams in the watch, magnetic watches, fucking a uh, pen that's like a goddamn uh, grenade. The shit from uh, Golden Eye yeah. after a certain amount of clicks. Like, yeah, it's like three clicks to arm it, two clicks to disarm it, or something. Yeah. And uh, shit like that, or the uh, for the not, never say never again, the pen that turns into a goddamn like rocket rocket launcher and shit. Yeah. So yeah, all these yeah all these different deadly gadgets into like ordinary uh, ordinary everyday things and shit. Maybe like uh, like bulletproof suits in one of them too. Which one was that? They had like some sort of like body armor built into the suit or something. I, they've done it a couple times. Like, you know, Any, I mean, there's sometimes it's defensive, but it's almost always offensive weaponry. It was like some guy, like an, I remember was one some guy in like a jacket and like somebody fires a machine gun and then it's like, well, yeah. Well, and then by the time you get to the later ones, you end up stuff more simple, like you know, a, a homing device that's hitting your watch and things like that. You know, something a little more simplistic, a little more realistic. But yeah, M, but Q is fucking nuts with this shit. Now, pay attention, Double Double Seven. Now, oh, very wristwatch. You know, of course, it gives you the whole little technical specs and like all the different gadgets that Bond is going to use to the movie. And of course, like the big, the PSD resistance usually is always the reveal of the car, uh, some new car. Or like, Actually, there was uh, one other thing. I can't remember if it came out at this point in the film or if it was later, but um, the first time that they had a personal watercraft was in that was in a Bond film. It's what it's what literally led to the whole like jet ski and Wave Runner. Um, it was a spot love me. Yeah, remember because he he had he basically had it was the first time anyone had ever done like a personal watercraft for one person, and it yeah. created a whole new industry uh, out here in the commercial world. It was insane. 
Yeah, because he uses the little jet ski thing to go to uh, what's the name, Stromberg's base. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, all the different cars and shit like the. Of course, the most famous one is the Aston Martin DB5, the one that shows up the most in most of the movies. Sean Connery had one. Uh, George Lazenby, uh, fucking Pierce Brosnan, uh, Daniel Craig. They basically uh, had it from Connery until um, until now, but I think the only time they missed uh, having an Austin Martin, um, or an Aston Martin, depending on how you want to say it, in, uh, in any of them was um, uh, Die Another Day, wasn't it? Pierce Brosnan, the last one? No, no, no. The only one of the Bonds that did not have an Aston Martin, not specifically the DB5, but did not have an Aston Martin was Roger. Was which one? Roger Moore. Roger never had the Aston. No, but I thought I thought in the last I thought in the last Pierce Brosnan one that was one of the big critiques everybody had was that he ended up driving a BMW instead of an Aston Martin. No, uh, the first, I think though two before that I have to look it up. I believe that uh, the ice car, the one the invisible car, I believe that's an Aston Martin. But by the two before that, he was driving BMW. Was a was a Roadster BMW Roadster. Yeah, yeah. He uh, I think that that Roadster one I think it was a Goldeneye. I don't know. I'd have to look it up again. I, I seem to remember there, that was one of the big critiques they had with Brosnan was that one of his films was one of the only ones that never had an Aston, that didn't, didn't have Aston Martin in it at least once. Oh, but uh, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think the Aston Martin made an appearance at least in most of Pierce's ones because he drove one at the beginning of GoldenEye. And you see it at the beginning like of uh, Tomorrow Never Dies when he's like at the college with the chick and shit. You see it parked. Um, uh, and I, don't I have to look, to look up again because I know it was in all of them, but I remember there was one in particular they were talking, and that was that was one of the big things that everyone kept saying. And I remember remember thinking about, it. but I didn't even watch the last one because I I was so turned off by that point. Yeah, but, but uh, I know the me of was Batman and Robin. That's what it looked like. Yeah, yeah, it was very it was very ridiculous. Uh, but um, like I said, the only one that straight up did never never had a Aston Martin uh, was uh, Roger Moore because. They made his car the Lotus. That, that, that jacked up, that uh, souped up Lotus that he had. That was his car for a little bit. I mean. Yeah. But yeah, Bond, yeah, Bond yeah, uh, gets his car, gets his gadgets, gets his mission, and such a nice off to wherever the ridiculous locale is for this particular story. Like it might be Japan, it might be Vegas, it might be goddamn uh, fucking uh, Macau or goddamn Hong Kong. Fucking, you know, all over the world, Italy, uh, Italy, Spain, Greek, like wherever the mission needs him. And usually, when he gets there, he usually encounters the Bond girl. You know what I'm saying? Like some beautiful, sexy bitch <laughs> who, like, you know, what I'm saying like uh, she might be the girl, uh, the girl of the main villain, or she might be like a fellow agent helping him out and some shit like that. And it's also like I was always like the bad Bond girl too. You know what I'm like she be like she might be an assassin for like the bad guy. Something like that, and he ends up smashing all of them because it's James Bond. Uh, but and also, he sometimes he also meets like allies, like fellow agents in the field that have come out on certain missions, like uh, what's the Tiger Tanaka and You Only Live Twice. And uh, oh, the main one is Phoenix Lighter. Oh, okay, and the one off is Phoenix Lighter because the thing about it is they always fuck up Phoenix Lighter because like they never really give you a bead of what Phoenix Lighter is really. Ooh, ooh. Who he is, what he does, all, all you know is that he works for the CIA. You know what I'm and depending on the interpretation, he might either be Bond's American counterpart or like just some guy that's his handler for the particular mission. 
But here's the important thing. Uh, if you are working for the CIA, you don't want people to know anything about you. So he's doing good. <laughs> yeah. And they, yeah. And they always change the, the race, the age, the, there's never a consistent look with uh, Felix Slider for the most part. However, there have been several actors that have played Felix Slider more than once. Like uh, David Hedison played him twice, one for, one for Roger Moore, one for Timothy Dalton. Uh, I think uh, he's been pleased to be played by black men twice. Uh, the first one was Bernie Casey in uh, Never Say Never Again. And the last one, and the most recent one, and I believe coming up with this movie will be the longest serving one, will be Jeffrey Wright. Because I think he's been feeding Slider the most of any actor. He'll be three times. Because well, so, he's... He's a great, great actor. So it's Felix Slider in uh, Casino Royale, Quantum Masalas, and now this next one, uh, A Time to Die. No Time to Die, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. yeah, so Jeffrey Wright. And like, but he always like meets different, like, but what, what's the shit the dude from uh, Pierce Brosnan was? Uh, Jack Wade, big yeah. blustery white man. Yeah, Jack Wade. <laughs> what's that there, Jimbo? <laughs> it's basically, it's like a Southern sheriff at that point. Well, you know J.W. Pepper. Just about. <laughs> it's your guy's creation, bro, J.W. Pepper. <laughs> I'm what are you? So caught a machine, boy. <laughs> Secret agent. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Or the, when the, and the man would go, you were chasing somebody. We had at the time, boy. Comments, let's go get him. I'm with y'all all the way. <laughs> yeah, this is funny, Moses. God damn, that was a bad character. <laughs> J.W. Pepper. All right, I'm, I'm going to get off with of J.W. Pepper. Like, technically, he would be an ally, technically. Uh, so we got that. We got the briefing with him. Oh, what am I forgetting? The villains. Well, yeah, that's 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 part of the mystique of the James Bond is the ridiculous fucking villains, man. Larger than life, crazy man, fucking megalomaniacs, uh, drug lords, goddamn uh, turncoat agents. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, bad, uh, like evil industrialists and CEOs and shit. Dudes that really want to like take over the world or want to cause great harm to the world or complete some kind of crazy scheme that can cause like massive catastrophic results and of course James that is James is that'll stop him like you know what I'm saying the hero's only as good as his villain James Bond has some of the best villains ever oh, like, yeah like, they're like almost like a real life like well they would be like a real life version of like Batman's fucking yeah, cast of characters like they're always different. They're always weird out. They're always weirdos and shit. And like most of the villains are usually characterized by physical deformity, like uh, the whole shit with the sheep, where he like had the, the condition that he cries blood, and then they had like scars on their faces and shit, like Blofeld, or you know they do like plastic surgery, like Blofeld. <laughs> and then of course like the even the henchmen themselves like you know got the crazy features like you know and all they have some weird shit that like they use to kill people yeah jaws of course the most that's everybody's favorite is jaws because he's like this seven foot fucking giant with steel teeth and he uses like to bite people like a fucking vampire or to like break cables and shit with it and yeah it's seemingly indestructible like he usually survives some fucking catastrophic thing and then he just gets up brushes the shit off 
Precisa estar. Ele vai ver aquele. And then what's the, what's that boy's name with the hat? I can never remember. I'm always forgetting. Raja. Yeah. With the hat. Like, <laughs> let me show you. <laughs> he takes off the fucking hat with the, with the steel rim. He throws it and fucking take off the head of a fucking statue and shit. Or uh, I like the, what's the name of the girl? Zinya on the top. Like, who, like, who can like crush people with her thighs while they have a yeah. <laughs> And she like gets off on it. That's a villain Taylor made on. <laughs> yeah. And then like and she almost gets him a couple times in that shit too. But yeah. Like, yeah like actually she's one of the <laughs> she's actually one of, yeah, she's actually one of the few Bond girls if I remember that Bond the Bond is not sleeping. Lucky on the time. Lucky Bond. She's probably killer. She would actually she ain't the problem, she would kill her. But yeah, and then the what's the dude from uh um, the world is not enough. Uh, Renard, the dude who got gets shot in the head and he can't feel pain no more. Remember that? Yeah, he's like the he's like the he's like the main one of the main villains of uh, the world is not enough, along with the, the chick uh, Electric King. Okay. Like, yeah, uh, he's her dude, and like I said, Bond apparently shot him in the head in the mission, and he can't feel pain no more. Hmm. So, yeah. So there's that. Uh, but yeah, just weird de uh, deformities and shit, and they're just weird people in general. And also, since we talked about the girls, the girls always have like some kind of exotic ass name. It's like um, double entendre. Uh, let's go through some of the lists: uh, Honey Rider, Pussy Galore, uh, Holly Goodhead. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, Mary Goodnight. Also, that was uh, uh, Plenty of Tool. Yeah. Uh, Xenia on a top. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just those crazy names, you know what I'm saying? So, like, <laughs> Xenia on a top. On a top? On a top. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the villains are always great, man. And also, the villains usually end up dying at the hands of Bond and uses, like, either some equipment associated with the villain to kill him. Like, uh, what's the shit? Like, the shit with Kananga. So talk about your boy again. Kananga will fucking he uses the fucking air compressed bullet puts in his mouth and blows up. Or uh fucking uh what's that shit? Um fucking oh yeah, uh the bump the 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 Scaramanga's funhouse where he has the like the last statue of Bond. Oh yeah. And Bond, and Bond uses the shit to actually get into this wet statue clothes, gets in the skies and kills him. You know what I'm saying? Or uh fucking um Elliot Carver and uh, Tomorrow Never Dies when he has like the rocket that like can go up and around and all that shit and then they use the rocket to kill him. Yeah. 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 yeah they always do some sh or like uh, Hugo Drex in Moonraker since we talk about Moonraker. Fucking when he gets sucked out into space. That was good. That was probably the best part of that film. <laughs> yeah, when he gets sucked out into space. <laughs> but yeah, they always do some kind of weird shit like that. But then um, the base or uh, the headquarters or whatever of the guy usually explodes, uh, or there's some kind of big battle with uh, well, a lot of people getting killed. You're skipping ahead though. One of the other things that's in indicative of every single one of the Bond villains is they always have some visually interesting layer, right? That's that's one of the other. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. The bad guy, the evil, the evil uh, doer. 
that we're going after the villain, he's always got some crazy, like he's living in an old volcanic, formerly volcanic mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the volcano base. That's some crazy underground compound or a space station. <laughs> you know, or like, yeah, an entire city under the sea. I mean, space station. Uh, you know, Royale, when they tried to bring it back into reality a little bit, your your two main bad guys that you end up dealing with not one's got a got a house on like Lake Como or Lake Geneva or something, right at the end, and then even mm-hmm. like Steve, like he's got this crazy yacht where he's hosting all these crazy mm-hmm. stuff, so he's going from port to port. Like even that's still visually stunning. It's the same thing with a uh, Thunderball, where you have the yacht, and then like part of it, part of the fuselage can go and it turns to a goddamn jet. Boat or whatever the fuck, yeah, that kind of shit. That was that was sick. And uh, oh yeah, like just uh, uh, Blowfield in uh, Diamonds Are Forever, where he fucking takes over pretty much a Vegas casino. Yeah, yeah, and oil rig. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, the, the villain always has some big lair or whatever, and it usually ends up getting destroyed. Like I said, and like I said, uh, the villain gets killed. The main girl ends up in the embrace of James Bond. Shit clears a little bit, and then uh, uh, MI6 starts looking for Bond. Where's Bond? Where is he? You know, where is he? And you find him in the embrace of the woman, the main woman. Whatever. And they usually catch him in an uncompromising position. Like usually, either he just had sex or he's about to have sex or whatever. Uh, like the what's the shit? Like when he's like in the little escape tube, and the spy loves me, and then the yeah. escape tube is a floating towards M and and uh, Q and shit. My favorite one is a uh, Moonraker. <laughs> talk about that where he's in outer space they floating and they like naked but they like in the covers and shit and like what is Bond doing I believe he's attempting to re-entry <laughs> <laughs> that's a Mankiewicz line it should have been a Mankiewicz line he didn't write it but that should have been a Mankiewicz line <laughs> it wasn't but it should have been yeah I believe he's attempting to re-entry yourself. or like uh, so we talked about Margaret Thatcher for, uh, for your eyes only with the, with the parrot and like uh Oh, uh, Bob, uh, the, the Prime Minister would like to talk to you. It's like some lady playing Margaret Thatcher and shit. Like, oh, hello, Mr. Bob. We want to thank you for your service. And then the parents like, ah, give us a kiss. Give us a kiss. Oh, Mr. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> and Bond, yeah, just, he's like leaving the watch there for this pair to fuck around while, while he goes skinny different with the chick or whatever and shit. So yeah, it's always, they always leave the movie in the embrace of a movie. And then it ends and more often than not, the same song at the beginning of the movie is usually the same song at the end of the movie. And um, only a few times where it's been two different songs. And I remember specifically on the uh, the Timothy Dalton ones, there were two different songs. Like in the Living Daylights, the beginning song is like the, oh, oh, oh the Living Daylights by Aha. Uh-huh, and, and then the end is uh, If There Was a Man by The Pretenders. If There Was a Man. I actually love that movie. That's, that, I'm gonna get to that later. But I love the Living Daylights. Uh, yeah, whatever. I might think of weird. Fuck it. I love. It. And, the, and the second one also is a Timothy Dalton movie, uh, License to Kill. It's two different songs, and both of them by black singers. Uh, the first, the License to Kill, the beginning one was uh, Gladys Knight. Yeah. yeah. I had a license to kill, and I know I'm heading straight for your heart. That shit. And then the end one is actually my favorite Bond song, period. A lot of people don't even realize it's a Bond song. Uh, if you ask me to, I've had a If you ask me to, I just might change my mind and let you in my life forever. <laughs> no, that's a dope song. Yeah. 
<laughs> hey, it is what it is, man. Uh, but yeah, go ahead. I said it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. Just, so, um, and then like the, like I said, the credits roll. He states in the very end, it says James Bond will return. Like in the in the earlier movies, it would tell the exact name of the movie they supposed to be coming. But now it just says James Bond will return. Half the time they haven't made up their mind yet. <laughs> yeah. And actually, a couple times they actually did the name and then turned to be some other shit. Like, uh, specifically, uh, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Because at the end of it, it says, uh, James Bond will return it for your eyes only at the end. But then the next movie they made is Moonraker. Yeah, sure. So they changed it for your eyes only. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they, just, they just had to do one movie beforehand. I don't have any information on this. This is just me guessing. But knowing what was going on in Hollywood at the time, I'm going to assume that drugs may have played a role in Moonraker. <laughs> just. Oh, no, you know the main thing that played a role in Moonraker? What? Star Wars. Maybe that too. That is exactly what it was. They, they saw Star Wars, they saw the science fiction dollars getting, was booming, so they decided to capitalize on it. So, well, I can't wait. Movie. I can't wait till this next Bond film is full of the MCU slash animation because that's what's making money these days. It like it'll have like all the actors from the MCU as the as the villains and characters and shit. Yeah. And then and then the Rock is gonna show up partway through for a cameo. Actually, funny enough, the Rock does have a connection to the James Bond movies that a lot of people don't realize. Please allow. Okay. Uh, in uh. For, uh, in um, sorry, in you only uh, you only live twice. The sumo wrestler that he fights in Japan. Mm-hmm. That's the Ross grandfather. That's more of a connection than I expected. Yeah, the high chief Peter Maivia. That's who we, Sean Connery is wrestling, and that's the Rock grandfather. Right. So Rock does have a connection to the James Bond. And like I said, when they, uh, when I saw in like Spectre that they got Dave Bautista to play the villain, I was like, Fuck, why, did you, why did you just get the Rock? Then you have your family thing, you know what I'm saying? But that's that's why. Plus, I, I don't think I don't think you you got to look at the entirety of the budget and then say to yourself, "Can we really afford another 25 million?" To get oh yeah, I was about to say yeah, because he'll ask for about as much money as Daniel Craig. <laughs> that's what I'm saying because I mean he's like the if I remember right, last count for last year, he's the highest paid actor in Hollywood. Actually, he's been there for like the last couple years. No, but I'm just going off of last year alone. Like nobody's beating yeah. him, so yeah, it's top of the heap. He's not cheap. I think it's like I think it's like for the last few years it's been him and Downey Jr. I mean, from what I from what I remember hearing, and this one blew my mind. This has been a couple of years, so maybe it shifted a little bit. But as of about six years ago, five years ago, you could get Pacino for about a million. I mean, he yeah. only do it if he wants it. But I mean, as far as Hollywood actors go, like that's a steal, man. Yeah, it is, it is a steal. He was, he, was doing, he was doing stage plays in New York because he's just doing what he wants. I mean, he, he doesn't need to work anymore. The guy's he's sad. True. All right, now that we got through the whole formula, let's go ahead and get into the actors. All right. First off, Mr. Sean Connery. Yes, he was James Bond officially from 1962 to 67, came back in 1971, and then he did one more James Bond movie independent of Eon Productions in 1983. Uh, now, Sean Connery is the first official Eon Productions James Bond. Uh, and then, of course, he, you know, he was an amateur bodybuilder. No, I didn't realize. He was, I think he's like Mr. Scotland in like the night, one of the 1950s Mr. Universe uh, mm-hmm. contests. 
yeah, you see old pictures of him like swole. It's like, hey, okay, Sean. So yeah, Sean Connery was an amateur bodybuilder. Of course, he became an actor. Uh, actually, he got the attention of the producers of the Bond films from a Disney movie. Yeah, he was in. Yeah, Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Well, and you know how he sealed the deal on that, right? Well, like uh, his wife, the wife. Well, yeah. So Albert, Albert had gone to see it, and he liked him, but he wanted to make sure women were going to find him attractive. So he went back, saw the movie again with his wife, and his wife was like, "Yeah, yeah, he's he's, he's good." And yeah, then, yeah, the wife. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> Dana Broccoli really saved his career because she wanted to. <laughs> Thank you. Like, yeah, that's weird too. Like, fucking, like, uh, like, I, I made my career got made because Dana Brosnan found him fucking. Basically, that's basically what happened. <laughs> but Sean Connery, uh, actually, Albert, Albert Albert Broccoli was not really keen initially on Sean Connery, and, and more, the person who really wasn't keen on Sean Connery was actually Sir Ian Fleming himself. He did not like Sean Connery. He thought it was too much of a brute. And actually, I think he calls him at one point an overgrown stuntman. He did not have the finesse and elegance needed to play James Bond. But then uh, the, the film's director, Terrence Young, took young Sean under his wing and, you know what I'm saying, really helped him out, took him to, like, took him to, basically showed him how to live like a proper English gentleman, you know what I'm saying? Took him to, like, all, took him to his tailors, took him to his barber, took him to all the nicest casinos, told him, pretty much showed him how to walk, how to talk, how to, you know, what to drink, what to order, et cetera, et cetera. And it really helped out. You can see that that suaveness that Sean Connery has. Pretty much, he, ref, he refined this piece of coal and turned it into a turned into a Scotsman, and they had to make him more English. That's what the English do. <laughs> yes, very, very much a Scotsman, rugged Scotsman. Yeah. So, but after uh, yeah, after they did work on him, uh, so uh, Sir Ian actually liked Sean Connery so much that he added a Scottish ancestry to James Bond. Because of how much he likes Sean Connery. Well, and just one other thing before we move off of off of Sean that that Tom told us, um, me and, and anyone else who's fortunate enough to have him as a as a teacher was, you know, one thing that you have to keep in mind if you're looking at uh, actors as a as a director or producers, you always have to try to understand right where they're coming from because by the nature of what it is you guys do when you're performing and everything, insecurity is just it's it's the name of the game most actors are gonna be insecure to a certain extent, and it's because their entire life is under a microscope. Perception is very much reality for them because honestly, that's how they make a living, right? Like if you're perceived one way and you're able to maintain that perception, you can keep getting work, you can keep getting paid if that perception's hit or takes a, takes a, a, a deduction in any way, shape or form, you get into a position now where your very livelihood's on the line. So a lot of actors will, will end up rolling with, um, uh, with an entourage, right? And sometimes that's nothing more than these are the people I trust. I grew up with them, and that's where it's at. But at any yeah. any way you want to try to use to evaluate it, entourages, generally speaking, tend to denote uh, a certain lack of self confidence. Whereas uh, performers, and they're rare, but performers that you run into who go somewhere without an entourage, who show up and they do their work without an entourage, they're not bringing a lot of extra people around. They just show up and do the work. Tom always said those people, um, when you find them, they're, they're rare, they're a jewel, hang on to them, because those people are going to be able to carry anything you put on their shoulders. And he said John Connery was the first that he ever ran into like that. He said he would show up ready to rock and roll, the consummate professional, and he always had that, 
that self-confidence that was just bursting out from somewhere deep within that literally let him command any room he walked into. Yeah. And that, that's what you need in a bond. You have yeah. to have, because I've, I've, I've not, I've not heard enough to be able to know for sure, but I would be surprised if very many James Bonds um, are entourage heavy when it comes to onset because mm-hmm. they have to have that unflackable self-confidence. And when you put a camera on someone long enough, they don't have legitimately, it's going to come through. True. Now, uh, what I'm going to do now is going to go through a couple of quotes in terms of like people's interpretation of Sean. Now, uh, Sean himself described his version of Bond as a complete sensationalist. Since it's highly tuned, awake to everything, quite immoral, uh, I particularly like my version of Bond because he thrives on conflict. Yeah, you can see that Sean Connery's Bond is very much the sadist because he like he smiles after he kills somebody. Like he, he's rough with women. He, you know, what I'm saying he's pretty much like like whenever somebody like confronts him or like wants to kill him, he he's ready. Like, okay, you want to do it? Let's go. Like he, he's very much, you can, can see the smile on his face. Like, oh, okay, I get you. And he, yeah, he goes for it, man. And then, of course, at the end, when he kills him, he always has a little quip, you know, I guess he's much more for me. And he just, <laughs> he just goes off somewhere. <laughs> Shit. Now, um, there's an actual, uh, an academic, uh, well, a uh, teacher named uh, James Chapman who observed that Sean Connery's uh, Bond uh, should be credited for establishing a new style of performance a British stage hero in the manner of an American leading actor. Fair enough. Yeah, that's, that's the same. Yeah. And uh, Roger Moore himself actually commented on uh, Sean Bond. Uh, I'm doing Roger Moore. Yes. Sean is Bond. He created Bond. He embodied Bond because of Sean. Bond is instantly recognizable character around the world. He was rough, tough, mean, and witty. He was a bloody good 007. How was that? Pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, uh, after a couple of years in the role, Sean Connery started feeling the pressure of it and uh, actually left the role in 1967 after filming uh, You Only Do It Twice. Now, his actual quote was, I'm doing Sean Connery. It became a terrible pressure. It's like living in a fish factory. Part of the re- part, That was part of the reason why I wanted to finish being with Bond. And I wanted to completely be identified with it in the Shankar's world. And it became very wearing and boring. <laughs> but yeah, it became boring to me. Yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> like enough, man. It's really hard. No. I'm trying to keep keeping that Sean Connery going. I know, but I see. Because I, 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 I slip into Roger when I do the Sean I'm trying to, that's what I'm figuring. That's, that's what I'm seeing as I'm doing it. But I'll say that as the Scotch Irishman. Scotch and Irish accents are really to a short tough. I can do this. I can do this. Sean Connery from uh, Never Say Never Again very well because that pronoun- that that accent was crazy. Like, there's some slight lesions in your upper vertebrae. There's a reason to put it should He used some sort of harsh eye. <laughs> so I got that shit going. Uh, but yeah, he quit in 1967. Uh, they made, of course, they made another movie with another Bond, George Lazenby. Uh, and then they actually enticed Jay, uh, Sean back to uh, James Bond one more time for Diamonds Are Forever, which was written by your boy. And apparently, they, uh, to get to come back for Bond, he demanded a fee of uh, 1.25 million pounds or 27 million pounds in 2009 dollars. 
Uh, 12.5% of the gross profits. And as a further enticement, United Artists offered to back two films of his choice. So that's what he got to come back for James Bond. And also, the thing about it was, a lot of people did not like his performance. And, well, uh, before you go past that, though, do you know what he did with his fee, though, right? Yeah, he gave it to like a like a school for Scottish actors. Or something. He has he has a uh, he has a foundation set up that's a Scottish education fund, so he put all the money in that. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, by that point, sure. Bond films is he done? He didn't need the money. Exactly. So, yeah, he just he did that, and then I think he wanted to establish some that he wanted to help finance his movies and shit. So that's another reason why he did. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he did that one more one more time. Like I said, a lot of people. We're not crazy about his performance in Diamonds Are Forever. They kind of feel he's like phoning it in. And also he's visibly different than his previous Bond films because he's he put on some weight, the hair gone gray, teeth were bad. He, like, he just he just came across as being really bored. Well, he was old too. I mean, he was older. He wasn't a young man anymore. I and mean, that's the thing, like people always, compared to where he started, that's the thing, like growing growing up in an in a action movie franchise yeah. is murder on your body. It absolutely just destroys it. It beats because it's, but most of these guys, they do a good chunk of their own stunts, if not all of them, if they can help it. And so it just beats the hell. I mean, you look at Daniel Craig and Casino Royale to Spectre, like that was one of the things that's great about Skyfall when they're basically cataloging everything that's physically wrong with him. Yeah. Some of these things probably aren't that far off. From, I mean, obviously he's never been shot, but like, mm -hmm. you know, ending up with issues with your back and your knees, cartilage breaking down, shit like that. Like, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure a decade of that shit just has to wear on a body. True. Now, uh, like I said, after he left, he was enticed back one more time to play James Bond in 1983 for an independent movie uh, by producer Jack Schwartzman. Now, they, what they offered him for this shit, they offered him uh, $3 million, uh, and that would be $8 million in 2009 uh, bucks, percentage of the profits, as well as casting, director, and script approval for Never Say Never Again. Funny enough, I think she actually think he looks younger and never say never again than he does in fucking Diamonds Are Forever, which is weird to say because he's old. So what? I said, but how much time did he have off from the Bond franchise, right? I mean, so, yeah, he probably just relaxed. You know, yeah, he probably he was probably just relaxed and feeling good and taking care of himself. Yeah, like I said, he looks more virile and more like robust. He spent a decade eating right, sleeping right, golfing, and making a movie here and there, like it wasn't anywhere near the same pace as doing a Bond film. That's the other thing, too, people miss when it comes yeah. to, like, it, the, the pace back then really wasn't that different from now in terms of, like, most movies, if they're not yeah. driven or action-driven, four to six weeks. A Bond film takes a year. For, yeah. I mean, first unit and second unit, and even with these Bond flicks, even though he's not going to do all the second unit shit himself, he's going to end up in some of those shots. Yes, he is. Right? Because they're going to end up doing, because you've got you've to be able to do the match cuts. So even if even if you're going to use the soundstage thing, like, it's a, it's a long process that absorbs your entire life, and those shooting schedules are insane. I mean, we could talk about it when we do Diamonds Are Forever, but yeah. shooting in Vegas, that was yeah. a decision. Because <laughs> with all the gambling and everything else, I think Connery said that uh, he didn't sleep at all. He would, they would shoot all night, then he'd go play golf, then he would go uh, gamble, slot machines, whatever, until it was time to shoot. For like four weeks or five weeks, however long they're in the desert. Like, it was just, it's murder. Yeah. All right, now let's go ahead and get into some quick Sean Connery facts before I get into my movie. Uh, in 2003, Sean Connery's Bond was voted the third greatest cinema hero by AFI. 
the very first scene that he ever shot as James Bond is actually in uh, the sequence in Kingston, Jamaica, where he's at the airport and the girl with the uh, camera shit. That was his very first scene as James Bond. And that was July 16, 1962. Uh, contrary to popular belief, uh, Sean Connery was not wearing a hairpiece during his first two outings as James Bond. However, from, from Goldfinger on, yeah, he's wearing hair pieces. Because <laughs> his hair just got too thin. Hey, look, to be, to be fair, a large number of big actors were wearing hair pieces in the 60s and 70s. Yes, a lot of them did. Yeah. Uh, his favorite of his Bonds is also my favorite Bond, which I want to talk about in a little bit, uh, from Russia with Love. That's his favorite one. Um, he was voted People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive in 1989, and in 1999 was voted the Sexiest Man of the Century. Uh, he actually ties Roger Moore for the most portrayals of James Bond, seven apiece. However, Roger beats him because of the fact that all seven of his movies are official Eon productions. Sean only did six of those. The seventh one that Sean did was Infinity. <clears throat> Uh, he has two roles in common with Pierce Brosnan, James Bond, and they both played King Arthur. Okay. Sean played King Arthur in the movie First Night, yeah. and, and uh, Pierce Brosnan played him in Quest for Camelot. Yeah, so there's that. Uh, at six foot uh, 2.4 inches, he's actually the tallest actor to play James Bond to date. And, and funny enough, he beats... Uh, George Lazenby and Timothy Dalton by like well, a couple like centimeters an inch. So, because yeah. well, yeah. they're both of them are six feet. Metric system. Yeah, there you go. Uh, of these six actors to play Navy Commander James Bond, Sean Connery is the only one to actually serve in the Royal Navy. Hmm. Well, there's the authenticity. And also, he's the only one of the Bond actors to have actually slept with some of the Bond girls. He actually was dating. I don't know. Did Tom tell you this that he was dating uh, both? Uh, Jill St. John and Lana Wood. Yeah. <laughs> As we were alluding to earlier, right, that's where it gets a little bit interesting because uh, John St. Wood eventually ends up hooking up with uh, Rob. Jill St. John. Jill St. John. Uh, that, isn't that what I said? You said yeah. John St. Wood. Oh, I did that. Sorry. <laughs> Jill St. John actually ends up marrying Robert Wagner. Robert Wagner who was married to Natalie Wood, who Natalie Wood. Yeah. when she was out on, who's Lana Wood's sister. And uh, yes. they, they wouldn't, uh, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of uh, gossip around how this whole thing happened, but they refused to do a photo together. Now, supposedly, Jill St. John didn't want to do it. Um, Lana Wood, if I remember right, uh, her, her manager, or one of, one of their, uh, one of the other managers in there said it was actually, they were trying to keep it because they didn't want to embarrass Robert Wagner because of that whole thing, because it's all post-Natalie dying. But um, the ridiculous thing was is that they were both dating. It wasn't just that he slept with them. They were dating him simultaneously. Yeah, at the same time, yeah. And also, Sean Connery is the only Bond actor to star in both Eon Productions and non-Eon Productions as James Bond. Now, let's talk about my favorite movie from Sean Connery from Russia with Love. Now, the general synopsis of the movie is James Bond is assisting in a defection of this Soviet consulate member, uh, Tatiana Romanova, in Turkey, uh, while uh, Spectre is also trying to avenge James Bond by luring him with this like new device called the Lecter. Uh, 
So uh, there's that. Now, for the in terms of facts about the movie, it it actually made seventy more than seventy eight million dollars in the worldwide box office, uh, which is far more than this two million dollar budget, and way more than Doctor No. That was really the blockbuster, the first real blockbuster of the Bond movies is commercial above. Uh, it's the final, uh, it's actually the last James Bond movie that Ian Fleming ever saw. It's from Rush Wolf. I think if I remember, also, it was also, the last, uh, was also the last film that JFK saw before he died. Yeah, I was actually going to get to that. Uh, JFK, since we alluded to it a little bit earlier, uh, one of the reasons they made from Rush Wolf Love is because of the fact that John F. Kennedy, the president at that time, had listed Ian Fleming's book is one of his top 10 favorite novels of all time. So they capitalize on that. And like I said, uh, because of the, uh, yeah, because of the fact they decided to make Marshall Mudd the second James Bond movie. And according to the book, Death of a President, from Russia with Love was the last movie JFK saw in a private screening at the White House before he, passed, before he was killed in Dallas. Um, and the, the other thing towards that end, so it, if I remember correctly, it was an interview with Life Magazine when he said it. That's what mm-hmm. he, sales in the U.S. and really, really kind of helped make the franchise. And uh, that's why I was kind of alluding to hats earlier. You know, people, people now we talk about politics or whatever, no matter who's president, half the people hate him. And, you know, it's just the way that it is, right? He was such a popular president back then. If you watch, you go back, look at any old pictures, anything. One of the things that you always see with, with men's fashion, across the board, didn't matter, black, white, whatever, everybody wore hats, right? I mean, that was a huge industry. If you, if you got into working in hats that was that was like the quintessential male accessory until okay jfk was the first president who didn't wear hats and if you look i mean you go back look through any old magazines any old news clippings from the time jfk got in to his assassination it's like they just disappeared overnight you'll see him here and there now like you know the hipsters kind of mess with the fedoras and a little bit of that kind of stuff coming back but it's a novelty at this point and so that guy who's so popular, he literally changed the way of the entire country. And in some respects, most of the world dressed. Literally him coming out and saying, this is my, this is my jam. This is what I do for fun. This is how I relax. Mm-hmm. That was basically the seal of approval James Bond needed to, to be good to go for at least a decade. And, you know, it's, after that it's on them to deliver. And they obviously have. Yeah. Uh, the, the scene in the movie from Russia with Love where Bond meets Tatiana Romanova for the first time in the bedroom in the hotel suite has been used over and over again as basically an audition uh, scene for potential James Bond actors and Bond girls. And you can see it like in several different documentaries. You can see different people doing that same scene over and over again. You see Pierce Brosnan's audition online. You can see uh, People that didn't get Bond, but you know what I'm saying, they auditioned, like James, like uh, James Brolin, you can see his audition, you can see Sam Mills' audition, uh, Timothy Dalton's, uh, who else? You see Daniel Craig's one, uh, a couple other actors. I think Clive Owen did one. Yeah, you can see, like, you know, they used that one scene as an audition. I think in terms of the girls, you see, like, Eva Green did one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they, they used that scene. That's the, that's the audition scene. You see how well you're doing that one. Uh, and also, this movie actually can reintroduce the several conventions that are essential to the Bond formula. The pre-title sequence, the Blofeld character, the secret weapon gadget for a Bond. There's a, this is the first movie that actually had the gadgets. And the first gadget was basically an attache case with a bunch of shit in it. Uh, a helicopter sequence where Bond is being chased by uh, somebody in a helicopter. Uh, the uh, post... Uh, 
uh, a pretty much a action scene right after the main the main main climax, and then the uh, movie ending with the uh, song with the theme song and the lyrics and shit like that. And also this this is the first movie that has the James Bond will return credit at the very end. So they started a lot of shit with this movie. Yeah. Now, what about your favorite, uh, Sean? My, my favorite's Diamonds Are Forever. Um, part of that's probably due to uh, a lot of the, the background stories and the things that I was able to, to hear about. Um, probably the, the, the single most interesting thing I find from a filmmaker standpoint. So Tom was telling us about an early on draft that he wrote. Um, there's a scene with uh, Sean Connery towards the beginning. He's in the office with the guys and they're all drinking and they're, talk- they're uh, drinking and uh, toasting with sherry, if I remember correctly. And, um, he refers to it as a, as a 51 and one of the other, and you know, oh, yeah. move on. Well, when they were sitting down doing notes, somebody in the room said, there, there is no year for, for a sherry. A sherry's all based on this original vintage. That's the way they work it with this specific kind of wine. So he went back and retooled it. So there's this great exchange where Bond in the actual film says, uh, 51, I believe. And one of the other guys says, uh, Bond, it's a sherry. They they don't they don't have years. And then he replies, "It was a uh, the original vintage home, which it's uh, based I believe." And then you know somebody else comes in, like, "Oh yes, 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 I believe you're right." It was uh, M that it was M that asked it. Sure, it has no yeah. Yeah, I'm and referring then, to the original vintage. So yeah, yeah, and that and that whole exchange. Tom said of all the stuff that he's written because he's obviously involved in a bunch of Bond films. That whole thing. He said that's the one thing from any fan cons, anything he went to, he always heard from the fanboys was that it's the most James Bond thing ever because it's slightly sarcastic and at the end of the day he's on top, but it's not too much. It's just so finely tuned. And he always mm-hmm. pointed out, he's like, I screwed that up horribly the first time out, but because I was working with some people, we were putting it together, it ended up being one of the things that I still get credit for that everybody loves. And he said, I just I retooled it working off of notes. So for me, that's that's one of my one of my favorite um, parts of it. One of the favorite things about the way that uh, that that whole thing developed. Um, another thing that's just absolutely killer about this film for me is Jimmy Bean. <laughs> Everyone in our age bracket uh, has seen Jimmy Bean sausages. We're all very aware of his daughter. <laughs> oh god! But, but yeah, Jimmy, the, the main thing is Jimmy Dean's sausage. Yeah, and he's uh, he's playing. Is it? It's it's white. Is it white or Whiteman? I can't remember the, the character. Willard, Willard White. Willard that's White. His name. So he's he's this super villain who's like a casino owner in Las Vegas and all this stuff. It was. He's not. He's, it's not really the villain though. He's like pretty much like he's this reclusive dude who's kind of being pseudo kidnapped. Well, I mean, however you want to put it, he, they still. This is this is why. Let me get to where I was getting to. Yeah. Okay. They. they kind of bill him as he's not this great guy let me put it that way let's let's say he's a less than admirable person and the idea was he was based in large part on howard hughes and again most people in our generation if they know him at all it's maybe the aviator right uh at that point howard hughes owned uh was it the the desert inn if i remember right in vegas Um, he owned a couple of places in vegas specifically that's where he was set up he had his his the top floor basically where he was living as a recluse um, he was considered to be at a minimum really rough around the edges. He'd fire people for no reason. He did all kinds of weird, crazy shit. Um, and at the time, uh, Jimmy Dean was working for him as a, I think he actually was working in the kitchen, like as a, as like a chef or something. And he, he gets this role and that was the most uncomfortable part for him because it was obvious to everyone that he's playing 
like a Howard Hughes like character, and he's like, Peter goes like, I don't even know if I'm gonna have a job when this whole thing's done when I get to go back to work. Cause and also, <laughs> funny enough, uh, Howard Hughes was was friends with the producers, so I think I think if most, if not all, the casinos that you see them in, where they're doing interior scenes, are Howard Hughes casinos. Well, so he'll have them used to that shit. So the interior of that uh, that gaudy Las Vegas hotel suite. Yeah. So they were looking because they actually, I, Tom told me that they looked originally to try to maybe shoot something, you know, there on site because they're shooting all this stuff in Vegas anyway. But when they looked, mm-hmm. they couldn't find what they thought was a visually accurate enough kind of depiction of a gaudy Las Vegas hotel suite at the time. So I think it was mm-hmm. Ken Adams, the production's out, if I remember right, or Ken Adam. I don't I think I added an S to it. Yeah, Ken uh, Adam, yeah. Yeah, who actually went and he designed this ostentatious just ugly gaudy dripping and over design shit for them to to perform on they built it on a stage and went and did it there um yeah. i mean the, the the worst part of this whole thing is is that i know i'll never be able to do all of the stories justice that tom told us to it but i mean even that scene when when bond's coming out of the pool after he gets thrown mm-hmm. in with because at that point he was doing the toupee thing that was a bit of a a bit of an ordeal to make sure that happened right with him popping out so he doesn't lose the air and make sure because you actually watch the scene again when he pops out of the pool i think that was uh uh spartacus is that was a uh, uh, kirk douglas's house if i remember right i think that's who's oh, okay but uh, oh. he's popping out tears damn near perfect because he didn't go all the way underwater because they're worried yeah. that he wasn't going to hold on right um so i mean there's there's a million little stories like that that make it that much better for me but the, the mm-hmm. line, the whole thing, it was, again, even of those earlier ones, they didn't get too far out of control with a lot of the comic booky kind of stuff, even with the gadgets and the things. And um, it just makes for a really great one. And the funny thing for me is I actually probably grew up liking Golden Finger. I'm uh, Golden Finger better uh, than I, I, I like this or Goldfinger. I mean, better than this one, only because I was the first Sean Connery one I saw. And the mm-hmm. whole trying to rob Fort Knox and, you know, killing the girl by painting her all solid gold, that whole thing. Like, it was very, very visually striking and stunning. But for me, because of all the behind-the-scenes stuff Tom used to give us and all of the myriad of stories and the little lessons that he gave us about making good movies and working with uh, quality performers and, and mm-hmm. understanding how to kind of fill your role, whether you're in as a, as a, a director or a writer or another actor, all of those things, um, it just makes it, makes it one of the, one of my, my more favorite ones. I don't know what to say other than that. I got you. Uh, let's go ahead and go ahead and knock out to the next one, uh, George Lazenby. The one and done. Only did the one movie. Now, George Lazenby, before he was actually discovered, was actually one, I think, the uh, number one male model in the world at that time. Uh, and highest paid one at the time. And I think the producers noticed him uh, because he did a, a commercial for Fry's ice cream, chocolate cream, or something like that. That's him. And also, he's a, he, uh, so what he did was when he heard that he was being considered for the role, he literally went out and did like pretty much like a research mission. And uh, he found out all the places that Sean Connery hung out uh, when he was making Bond movies. So he took shit from different Sean Connery elements. Like he took the. Had, Bought the same wristwatch as Sean, went to the same Savile Row uh, tailor. Actually, got a suit that was actually uh, ordered for Sean Connery, but Sean didn't collect it. So he wore that for his audition. And he also went to Sean Connery's barber. So he did everything he could to look like Sean Connery. 
And then when he went in for his screen test, the thing, the thing that really got him the role was he actually didn't punch a pro wrestler in the face for real and broke his nose. And Albert Rock was like, oh, you're a guy. So, so he, so he got, so he got the role because he broke a wrestler's nose. And uh, yeah, he was actually um, the youngest Bond, the youngest actor to ever play Bond. He was 29 when he was cast, and he was 30 when the movie premiered. And uh, also, uh, a lot of people were kind of iffy against him because of the fact he's the first Bond after Sean Connery. So initially, they don't compare him to Sean. Uh, a lot of people felt he was uh, humorless, stiff annoying and smug some of the reviews and uh but the director peter hunt said you know if he had given he got a little more time he could have been a very great bond very good you know uh and of course uh what what's it commerce is going to come into play i mean if you're not making the money with it you ain't going to get a second shot true also what one thing that's very unique among the bonds uh george Lisby actually never signed a contract to portray bond i think he had like just an agreement or whatever and um, negotiations pretty much dragged on throughout the production while he was filming. He never actually signed a contract. And he subsequently, and uh, what happened was, in terms of why he left, he was convinced by his agent, uh, Rowan McRally, that the secret agent archetype was uh, becoming archaic, especially in the wake of uh, the liberated 70s with movies like Easy Rider and shit like that. He's like, this is where we're going. You know, James Bond is the thing of the past. Like, don't, yeah. You know, Get rid of this Bond shit. And, of course, George, being the novice that he was, <laughs> left the role in 1969 after one movie. Get rid of that agent. Yeah. And apparently he was like, and then you see him in the premiere, he's really into, like, the whole 60s uh, drug scene because he, like, grew his hair out, got a beard. He's wearing a tuxedo, but he, like, yeah, he's very hippied out. And he has one weird interview where he talks about experimenting with LSD and shit like that. And it's like, yeah, man, the Bond. And he, like, talked very hippie. Like, like, yeah, man, the Bond thing is it's whatever, man. You know? Like, I, I want to do, like, Easy Rider. I want to do stuff like that. Like, no. <laughs> like, like, dude, you literally just what were handed. What was it? What? what was it the character says in, um, uh, in uh, Tropic Thunder? You just shit the money bag, my friend. <laughs> Literally did, dude. Like, you really just let go of the biggest goose, the biggest golden goose literally in the world. You were handed the role of a lifetime. And you were talking about it. From a fan perspective, it was great because he really was. He was too stiff. I mean, like I've talked about before, Roger Moore's not my favorite, but I, I yeah. like Roger Moore. I get it. I love Roger Moore. Yeah. So uh, now a quick couple of facts about George Lazenby. Uh, of all the actors, he's the only one that was actually nominated for a Golden Globe for Best New Star of the Year. Uh, he uh, also studied martial arts under Bruce Lee. And actually, funny enough, he was actually supposed to star alongside Bruce Lee in, of course, Bruce Lee's last release film, Game of Death. However, uh, Bruce died two weeks before filming could start. And uh, actually, George Lazenby was actually George Lazenby was actually supposed to have dinner with James Bond, oh, with uh, Bruce Lee, excuse me. Now he died. Mm-hmm. They're actually supposed to have dinner together. And actually, they they still saying they use that same footage of George Lazenby in Game of Death, so he's in there. So uh, he also said his favorite Bond movie is Goldfinger. Hey, Judy. Sorry. Hi, Judy. <laughs> hey. Yeah. 
Hey, dog. I'm sorry, I'm keeping your, I'm sorry, I'm keeping your man so late. We're having a good conversation. Oh, no worries. <laughs> dogs. Okay, cool, cool. Uh -huh. All right, well, we will. Yeah. Uh, that was Mrs. AJ for you folks. <laughs> All right. Uh, also, Rick, yeah. <laughs> also, he has the uh, unique distinction of, of having been both the Marlboro Man and James Bond. So, I didn't know he's the Marlboro Man. Uh, yeah. Actually, uh, he missed to not seeing any of the other James Bond films other than his own. Sounds like a bitter, bitter pill to swallow. <laughs> he also, <laughs> funny enough, since we're talking about that, he also dated Jill St. John. And Barbara Streisand, which is funny, which is funny enough because Barbara Streisand is married to James Brolin, who also auditioned for James Bond. So, yeah. <laughs> and also, despite the fact he only did the one movie, due through various other things that he's done, particularly real estate, he is estimated to be the wealthiest of any actor who has ever played James Bond. Well, it's got to be everything else he did. That money. <laughs> it's, everything, it's everything else he's done. I think I think mostly he's done like real estate shit. Yeah, well, you know, it's a good way to make some money. Yes, it is. Yeah, so uh, we're gonna talk real briefly about his movie uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, uh, where basically Bond faces uh, Blofeld, who's basically trying to hold the world hostage for the threat of sterilizing the world uh, through uh, his angels of death, uh, girls from different nations or whatever, uh, and also he falls in love and marries Contessa Teresa de Vincenzo played by Diana Rigg from your members. Now, a couple facts about the movie. Uh, the theme of the movie, uh, the theme song of the movie, We don't, We Have All the Time in the World by Louis Armstrong, is the last uh, song that Louis Armstrong recorded before he died. Satchmo. Satchmo, baby. Uh, Sir Sean Connery actually said uh, he would have preferred to do a movie like uh, Her Majesty's Secret Service other than you, know, you only did it twice. So Sean is a fan of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like uh, I said before, it's not my, my top five, but it's not a bad one. It's not Moonraker. No, it's not. Uh, this is the only Bond movie with a sad ending. Yeah. Because the fact that uh, it's also the only Bond film that features James Bond getting married. So, and then, like I said, it ends tragically with uh, poor Teresa being killed on their wedding day uh, on the way to the honeymoon by his enemies. In the drive-by, really like, wow. So, yeah. And uh, also, this is a Christopher Nolan's favorite Bond movie. And also, references a lot of references of, of it can be found in Inception. So. Yeah. 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 Uh, this is also uh, Steven Soderbergh's favorite movie of the Bond franchise. I would have thought he'd have been a Moonraker guy. No, he, he, this is his favorite one. Uh, this is actually what he quoted. He said, for me, there's no question that cinematically On Her Majesty's Secret Service is the best Bond film and the only one worth watching repeatedly for reasons other than pure entertainment. Shot to shot, this movie is as beautiful in a way that none of the other Bond movies are. Steven Soderbergh. Okay. Uh, this is the first Bond we, uh, we openly see James Bond crying. And also, uh, this... Uh, this movie brings out the uh, the Bond family motto, uh, you know, because they have the whole get down where he's uh, posing as a genealogist and they actually look up James Bond shit as a cover. And you see his family, Chris, ominous, oh, excuse me, Orbis non sufficient. Translated from Latin, the world is not enough. 
which has actually become a uh, <laughs> title to one of the James Bond movies in 1999. Yeah. So, yeah. That's George Lazenby. Let's see. Oh yeah. Also, uh, IGN ranked Honor Majesty's Secret Service as the eighth greatest Bond movie ever. Entertainment Weekly ranked it as the sixth greatest Bond movie ever. Uh, Digital Spy magazine listed the Bond movie as the best Bond film to date. And also, uh, in a 2002, 2012 poll from 007 magazine, apparently a poll of Bond fans voted this the greatest Bond movie ever. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right, now let's get into a favorite of both of ours, Sir Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. Served as James Bond from 1972 to 1985. Quite a run. Now, uh, oh, go ahead. I just said that's quite a run. All right. And then, uh, unlike most of the Bond uh, actors, uh, Roger Moore was a well-established, you know, actor before he got the role of James Bond. He had done, you know, Simon Templar and the Saint. And he was uh, in the Persuaders with uh, Tony Curtis, and he was—he, uh, I think he was on Maverick. Uh, if a little bit, yeah, he was on Maverick, and uh, yeah, he was a well-established actor when they uh, when they actually cast him for *Live and Let Die*. And uh, uh, basically, what the, the difference between actually, I have a quote here from uh, Tom Makewitz. I wonder who that is. Uh, he actually, <laughs> he actually uh, fitted uh, his initial screenplay for *Living Let Die* around Moore's persona, giving him more comedy scenes and a more lighthearted feel to Bond, which actually made Bond, according to some other artists, as a rather smarmy, eyebrow-raising international playboy that never seemed to get hurt. <laughs> it works. <laughs> it worked just fine, man. And a lot of people thought he was a too nice and too well mannered to be a James Bond of any real substance. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I want Pierce Brosnan yet. Oh yeah, wait till we get there. Um, one critic wrote: Roger Moore recreated Bond as an old style debonair hero, more polished and sophisticated than Sean Connery's iteration, uh, using a mocking uh, uh, reassurance that uh, that he perfected from his role as Simon Templar. Uh, Rogers Moore, Roger Moore's humor was a throwaway, and certainly in later uh, later films, verged on uh, self-parody. Uh, it was an essential strand of the increasingly tongue-in-cheek direction of the series, in which became a lot more lighthearted, knowing, and playfully intertextual. So, uh, but yeah, like Moore's, uh, <laughs> a lot of people commented that Roger Moore's one-liners were delivered in such a way that made the violence in the movie inherent. It pretty much made it a joke as opposed to Sean Connery's one-liners that were kind of like, you know, meant to uh, kind of like put a nail on the violence. You know what I'm saying? So it was very different. They were more, they were more uh, whereas Roger Moore's was definitely a little more playful. Yeah. And even Roger Moore himself describes it like his approach to Bond with the humor. He's like, <clears throat> do the Roger Moore voice again. To me, the Bond situations are so ridiculous. I mean, this man is supposed to be a spy, yet everyone knows he is a spy. It's utterly ridiculous. You have to treat the humor outrageously as well. I like doing Roger Moore, dude. We gotta figure out. A, I think we. Sh- I think we should figure out a segment for Roger Moore because I really like doing Roger Moore. Do a Roger Moore segment. <laughs> 
Yeah, Roger Moore reading like, <laughs> yeah, like the commentary thing. Drunk Roger Moore, <laughs> just reading. <laughs> shit. Uh, I told you about the. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, look at the. Uh, there's a, a DVD release of the uh, James Bond movies re-release anyway, which has a commentary track with Sir Roger Moore doing his Bond movies. He is drunk as shit. Uh, during most, well, a couple of them, and he pretty much puts it out there. He's been drinking, so like, and like he'll start out like, <laughs> I think I've done this before. But like, that's me playing James Bond. This is not as much a commentary, it's more of a one-sided conversation. As I cannot talk to you, and you cannot talk to me. So do as I'm doing right now. Sit back, kick off your shoes, and have a glass of wine. <laughs> I like I like to watch him more. <laughs> the thing you gotta give him a little bit of a break on was they didn't even start messing with commentary until the late nineties. So they literally yeah. just came back to him like, Hey, we're gonna put this thing out. Um if you'll come back, we'll give you twenty thousand dollars for the day or whatever it is. And so he's like, ah, I could just Oh really, really. I'll do it, but I'm not gonna be sober. <laughs> Uh, you, you don't mind if I have a bit of a glass while I watch well, and, and something I think a lot of Americans miss is that in, in the European side of things, um, yeah. it doesn't matter if you're working or not once you're retired, right, which is what he is. And hell, even if you're not, after a certain point in the day, uh, a little alcohol goes a long way and nobody turns it down. I mean, I, I can't even tell you the number of guys I talk to who work in, uh, in uh, well, London, for example, and they're like, yeah, we go out and have beers at lunch. Like, that's like you can't even yeah. thought about doing that here, you lose your job. So I'm totally, totally willing to believe that he showed up shit face to sit in a recording studio and talk about his movies he's watching. I actually have not seen these movies since the pandemic. So as I'm watching them, it's not so really so much day-to-day routine as I honestly do not remember. It's more recollections as I watch them, other films I've done. Things about <laughs> <laughs> All right, now Roger Moore actually added a number his number for his own personal touches to his version of James Bond. In particular, cigars. His Bond smoked cigars. You know what I'm also, uh, he wore safari suits in a couple of the movies. I do. Uh, he wore a safari suit in Man in uh, uh, Man with a Golden Gun. He also wore another one in Octopussy because he actually had that safari scene. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, an octopus. Yeah, so uh, he had a little bit of a shit. Now, actually, by the time he did uh, his, uh, by, by by the time he did fucking um, for your eyes only, he he himself said like, you know what, I'm way too old to be doing this. And like that, that was when the uh, negotiations began. With like, they would have to entice Roger more and more each year to come back as Bond. And then finally, it got to the point in 1985 for his last movie, where it's like, you know what. He can't do this anymore. He actually said he was embarrassed because of the fact his co-star was Tanya Roberts, who was 30 at the time, and he's 57. I was like, oh, no. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> actually, one, one writer says, uh, Roger Moore isn't just long in the tooth. He has tusks. It looks like, <laughs> it looks like an odd job. He <laughs> looks like he's giving like an odd job, like this uh, pink-eyed blankness of a zombie. He's not believable anymore in the action scenes, and even more less so in the romantic scenes. And even Roger himself wrote, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll back to uh, I was only 400 years too old for Roger to be 
So with his last movie, uh, A View to a Kill in 1985, Roger Moore retired as James Bond. Now, a few Roger Moore facts. Like, like I said, he was the oldest actor to ever of all the Bonds to play James Bond. He was 45 when he got cast. And he was 57 when he retired. So, oldest one. And again, like I said, he's... He, go ahead, what do you say? No, I just was agreeing with this one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, again, like, like I mentioned earlier, he is starting the most uh, official Eon films of any James Bond, seven in total. He's the first of the Bond actors who movies of all together gained over a billion dollars at the box office. Uh, his contract typically uh, provided him an unlimited amount of uh, Monte Cristo cigars during filming. Uh, apparently the bill of this English ran into the So what? He said and since he's English, they're Cubans. Exactly. And apparently the bill for this usually ran into thousands of pounds. Uh, despite playing uh, James Bond in seven movies, he's never actually ordered a vodka martini chicken that stirred in his life. Uh, he named The Spy Who Loved Me as the favorite of his Bond movies that he did. He also has some other favorites of the Bond franchise. His favorite gadget is the magnetic watch in uh, Live and Let Die. His favorite villain, Scaramanga, from uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. His favorite Bond girl is Barbara Bach as Anya Amosova, Agent Triple X. <laughs> uh, his favorite henchman, Jaws, of course. Uh, and uh, <laughs> let's see. And also, uh, he has uh, basically, he's basically said that A View to a Kill is his least favorite of all the Bond movies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and apparently, ironically, for an actor who plays a gun wielding fucking secret agent, Apparently, he has a what they call a hoplophobia, fear of a fear of firearms. <laughs> and <there's something. laughs> so, yeah. Also, this is one I found very interesting. Uh, he's actually the only actor to have ever played James Bond and Sherlock Holmes. Because he, did, I, I actually looked it up too. He did a TV movie in the eighties called James Bond in New York. Yeah. Mm. And him, James Bond, coming coming to New York to hunt down Moriarty and shit. And yeah, pretty cool. And also, and this is more tragic, he is the first and only official Bond actor to date to have passed away. He died, and uh, he died on uh, May twenty third, two thousand seventeen, from cancer. Yeah. So, yeah. peace, Sir Roger Moore. Yeah. Uh, now going to his uh, Bond films. Uh, my personal pick for him, his Bond film, The Spy Who Loved Me. So that's my favorite. That, that is my, well, my favorite is For Your Eyes Only, but I feel his best one is The Spy Who Loved Me. And now, the storyline of that one is, of course, a reclusive multi uh, millionaire named Carl Stromberg is planning to destroy the world and create a new civilization under the sea. James Bond has a team up with a Russian agent, Anya Mosova, to stop the plans, also while being hunted by Stromberg's henchman, Jaws. So, so hold on, I got, I got a pitch for you. So it's like Moonraker, yeah. but underwater. Actually, uh, <laughs> actually, I was thinking something better. How about the spy who loved me in space? <laughs> So fucking stupid. <laughs> actually, I remember some movie that actually pointed it out. Like freaking, like uh, I forgot the name of the movie, but there's like some nerdy kid who actually points this out to a girl when he like, like he has it in the room. And he says, "But yeah, it's the same shit." Like like <laughs> the the villains' plans in both 
The Spot Who Love Me and Moonraker are essentially the same. It's just the locale is different. Destroying yep. society yeah. to start a new civilization. One wanted to do it in space. The other one wanted to do it underwater. Same shit, though. <laughs> That's why you like Moonraker. <laughs> and also, both movies, they have them teaming up with a female secret agent. One is Russian. The other one's American. And I'll be honest with you, the Russian one is a lot more, a much better actress. Um, and uh, also, at the same time, still being hunted down by Jaws in both movies. Yeah. So. <laughs> now, uh, also, uh, of the the facts about the movie, uh, time, the Times actually placed Jaws and Stromberg as the sixth and seventh greatest Bond villains ever in a series in 2008. And they also uh, named the... Uh, the Lotus that he drives in the movie, the second best Bond car ever after the Ashton Martin. Uh, the uh, the score of the movie uh, done by Marvin Hamlish, who also did The Sting, the Paul Newman movie, yep. The Sting. Uh, he was nominated for best song, best original score. Uh, he was nominated for uh, the Golden Globe for best score and best song and shit. Now, and also they nominated. I was also nominated. Uh, Carla Simon was also nominated for the song. Nobody does it better. Hmm. Uh, this is the first Bond movie to make significant references to Bond's past, particularly his recruitment to the British Secret Service from the Royal Navy, his many lady friends, and alluding to his marriage to Tracy in uh, On Our Marriage to Secret Service. This is the first time they actually did it outside of On Our Marriage to Secret Service. So, and I like the scene, too, because it's, it's Annie Amosova who uh, puts that shit out on him. He's like, they're at the bar, they're having a drink or whatever, and she knows everything about him, just like she knows what kind of drink he likes. She starts going over. She, Commander James Bond, recruited to the British Secret Service from the Royal Navy, many lady friends, but married only once. Wife killed, and he starts with, oh, "Okay, she's like you're sensitive, Mister Bond." He's like about certain things, yes. So, yeah, understand. And uh, but also, uh, the, let's see, what, what that's arguably. <laughs> that again. So that's arguably his most human moment in the entire Bond franchise. No, actually, I think his most human moment was like the same same movie uh, about an hour later uh, when they uh, they're in uh, the house, uh, well, they're in the place or whatever, and she finds out that he's the one that killed her dude. That scene. Well, like she's like uh, he's talking about like oh, like she's like he's like lighting a cigarette for her and the lighter. She's like, "Where'd you get the lighter?" Well, I got it from like Hamburg. What the fuck? She's like, "You were in Hamburg?" Like, yeah. Well, when when was this? Just a couple weeks ago. And then she pulls out a picture of an old dude. She's like, well, "You know this man?" He's like, "No." But who is he? The man I loved. Did you kill him? And of course, you see at the beginning of the movie, he kills a guy on skis. He doesn't see the face, but he does kill somebody. And he's like, and then he says it like, well, somebody coming at you 60 miles an hour trying to put a bullet in your back, you know, it's have time to see a face. He's like, in this business, people get killed. Yeah, he but I mean, you get yeah. similar moments with that, even with the Daniel Craig iteration. Like, there's similar things to that where it's like he's, he's talking about, about a kill or about losing someone, and you kind of get little bits and pieces. But I, I still, feel, still feel that his moment with her in the bar, that, that short little scene, I feel yeah. is I think it's even more human than at the end of Casino Royale when you're watching um, him talk with Am about uh, about Eve. True. But, but yeah, I give you that. it's, like, it's just personal preference, I guess. Yeah, likewise. Now, like I say, the answer to your question is yes, I did kill him. And of course, when this mission is over, 
I'm gonna kill you. It's a great scene, man. A little short, very short scene, but it's a really good scene. And, and like we talked about before, Roger Moore is not my favorite, but it's great. Yeah. And also, uh, this is uh, the uh, we talked about the songs, or like you know, nobody does it better is the song for this movie. But the lyrics actually say the spy who loved me. This, yeah, just the lyrics say it. And uh, also, this is the first Bond film to use an original villain, not one based on the novels. Uh, the Steel Teeth actually come, would come back to have a huge influence in the hip-hop culture due to the grills. Apparently, the grills were created as a homage to Jaws. Because uh, he, he has the Steel Teeth. I didn't they're, like, they're, Paul, they're like Paul Wall and them in Texas, but they got the grills and the diamonds and shit. Apparently, they got that from James Bond, Jaws. Alright. <laughs> That's what they got it from. And of course, like like I mentioned earlier, uh, Roger Moore passed away in 2017 on the 40th anniversary of this movie. That was the day. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so <laughs> let's get into my favorite. <laughs> um, AJ does not get Timothy Dalton. Served as James Bond from 1986 to 1994. Now, whatever. <laughs> Look, now after the retirement of Roger Moore in 85, which we just mentioned, they went on a big search for a new James Bond. And some of the potential choices were Sam Neill, Pierce Brosnan, and Timothy Dalton. Now, uh, they were really keen on uh, um, particularly Sam Neill. Uh, I think the, direct, uh, was, uh, the director, um, Barbara Broccoli and Dana Broccoli, really wanted Sam Neill for James Bond. Uh, but really, um, Albert Broccoli, Cubby Broccoli was nasty. So they uh, decided to go with it. This is a good spot to toss in the the family relation on uh, on the producerial side. So Barbara Broccoli is obviously Albert's daughter. And this is when she finally started stepping more into the producerial role because after her her father passed away, she would take (laughs) over for the company and for the franchise. And we'll get into that a little later with Daniel Craig and some of the stuff, how she's changed and shaped the way that we've gotten into the modern iteration of Bond. Uh, particularly her and Michael G. Wilson. Now, Michael G. Wilson is actually uh, Dana Broccoli's son from another marriage, and uh, and Cubby Broccoli adopted. And he is now the co-producer with Barbara Broccoli, so it's like pretty much brother and sister. Running, well, uh, they, they, both, they both get producing credits, because when you say co-producer, that could mean something different. They're, they're the producers they took over. Yes, they are. Yeah, Barbara, uh, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. Yeah. Now, um, they, like I said, they really went with Pierce Brosnan. They actually offered him a contract and all this other shit. But however, um, the thing about the <laughs> Pierce Brosnan situation, which is pretty interesting, I was going to get into this a little bit more when we got to Pierce Brosnan, but we might get into it now. Uh, Pierce Brosnan at the time was starring, on a sh- was starring in a show called Remington Steel, where he played like this thief turned private, private investigator, uh, who was actually the front man for this private eye company ran by a lady, but she felt that nobody would like, um, Trust a lot of private eyes, so they pretty much she pretty much hired Remington Steele to be the face of her company. You know what I'm saying? And she would solve mysteries while he would just look dashing. That's pretty much that's pretty much Remington Steele. But uh, Remington Steele had been canceled, uh, but because of the interest of Pierce Brosnan uh, as James Bond, new interest came back for Remington Steele, and the producers of the show decided, you know what? Oh, fuck that. We're doing another season of Remington Steele. But uh, because of that. They couldn't get Pierce Brosnan out of his contract from Remington Steel. 
So they had to go with somebody else, and that somebody else was Timothy Dalton. So yeah, it, it's really fun. And then the fun part about it was they uh, they ended up doing Run to Steel the next season or whatever, and then they decided to cancel it halfway through. Yep. That's some bitch shit right there, man. But you know what? It worked out for him in the end. Yeah, it did. But still, that's really a bitch move to do. You uh, you you, cut, you cancel the show. You re reinstitute the show because the dude gets this main dude of the show gets uh, a lot of buzz for being a new James Bond. And then once that buzz is gone, fuck it, cancel the show. Again. Economics, man. <laughs> well, anyway, Timothy Dalton was actually uh, introduced as the new James Bond in August of 1986 with a salary of $2.5 million. And also, in preparing for the role, Timothy Dalton read all of the, um, the original uh, Ian Fleming novels, uh, basically to get role ready for this movie. Now, um, Timothy Dalton, green-haired, dark-eyed, Shakespearean-trained actor, uh, was a was a student at the Royal Academy Royal uh, uh, Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, Rada, but he dropped out uh, along with the other great, pretty much uh, most of the great British actors of the last God knows how many years have been students of Rada: Patrick Stewart, Jeremy Irons, goddamn Alan Rickman. You know, all these can all these guys came from essentially the same place. Roger Moore is a writer person too. So they all came from you know that great school. Uh now Timothy Dalton's bond was actually considered the ser- a serious one. He was dark, emotional, stern, ruthless, showed very little humor, and was very focused on uh as a killer with very little time for fun or indulgence. And uh <laughs> Timothy Dalton actually said his interpretation of Bond came from his desire to see a darker bond one who's less of a womanizer, tougher and closer to the actual darker character that Ian Fleming wrote. I've actually, like I said, I read the books. He is actually closer to, he's one, he's basically, I think he was the first actor who was closest to the original Bond from the novels than probably anyone before him. So, and, but the thing about it is most people were not used to that interpretation of Bond. They were used to the Sean Connery, Roger Moore, kind of witty, you know, funny Bond. What you're, what you're running into there is you're, you're looking at a situation in, in pop culture and media, right, where you have, you have two factions. There's the people who grow up on the novels, who love the novels, and they love that characterization. And you have people who only know what they've seen in, in cinema, and that's what they see and they love and they, they go towards. I mean, we'll get into it a little more when we get to Daniel Craig, I think, but that, that bastard quality we talked about that Sean Connery has, that's a very specific one. And when you talk with, like, Tom always used to say the conversations that he'd have with Albert Broccoli and all, all of the original Bond guys from the cinematic side of things was that's what they wanted. That's the character uh, that they were striving to portray, right? They liked that, that thing. And that's why they think that, you know, Tom had said before he passed away of all the ones that, that came and went, Daniel Craig was probably the closest that he'd seen to what they were going for. And again, that's because you're talking about what is your end goal? And for someone like you, who's who's more of a purist when it comes to the novels and the novelization, it makes sense. It's not to say that anybody's wrong at this point. We're just starting to argue taste. Yeah, and like I said, a lot of people, like I said, a lot of the critics and a lot of the fans were not really used to this sort of bond. And actually, one critic said, "Any vet, any vestiges of the gentleman spy by Ian Fleming are now gone, and that uh, Timothy Dalton's character is now remarkably close in both deed and action to Batman than James Bond." But again, that that's a that's a film critic who didn't read the novels. 
true. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but but uh, they betrayed the broccolis. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, many of the people who worked on the James Bond films actually have high, very high praise for Timothy. Now, Roger Maybaum, who who was the screenwriter for a lot of the James Bond movies prior to, you know, Tim, Tim Mankiewicz and other people like that, and I think he I think he did some after Tim Mankiewicz, Tom Mankiewicz. And uh, but he uh, he while he considers Sean Connery the best Bond, he considers Timothy Dalton the best actor that he of the four that he worked with. Uh, Tom Mankiewicz also oh, well, uh, Tom Mankiewicz kind of agreed with this view. He also praised Timothy Dalton's androgynous facets. Uh, now Roger Moore uh, said that Timothy Dawn was the best actor to play Bond. John Glenn also said he was the best actor to play Bond. Well, look, he, again, if we're going to talk about actors, yeah, you gotta, you have to give Timothy Dawn a ton of credit when it comes to his chops as a as a performer. Oh yeah. Why why I don't like him as a Bond is because I come at it entirely from the cinematic side, and I love yeah. I love that bastard quality that they went for with Connery and they captured so well with, yeah. with Daniel Craig. Yeah. And so that, again, it's just coming back to the the taste side of things. I mean, he was a he was and is a hell of a performer. Yeah. And a lot of people are saying that it, uh, Dalton's Bond was ahead of his time in terms of being darker. And a lot of recent uh, critics have actually compared him a lot to Daniel Craig in terms of their interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said Timothy Dalton of, of all his uh, you know fallings, he had he was basically too much of a stage actor to be as convincing an action hero in the age of Bruce Willis. Um, Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone, because all those guys were on the rise when Timothy Dalton was becoming James Bond. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and that's when that's when action sequences were starting to get out of control. Oh yeah, definitely. And didn't we we watched uh, what was the um, shit? Commando. We did, we did the watch along for the Schwarzenegger pick. Command Commando. Commando, yeah, like Commando. <laughs> it's it's basically eighties action porn. Like it's just ridiculous, over the top. I mean, all of the all of the rounds that he expends and he never gets touched. Like all of that shit yeah. was just it was out of control. And again, the core of what I love about Bond, and that this is the this is the biggest saving thing I'll give to Dalton over Brosnan because we're gonna get to Brosnan's in a second. It yeah. was a little bit more towards that hyper realism. Yeah, that's true. Now, after doing just two movies, The Living Daylights and License to Kill. Uh, litigation actually ensued in terms of the licensing of the Bond catalog. Uh, so basically it delayed uh, Timothy Dalton's third film for several years. Uh, actually, his six-year contract expired in 1993, and actually on the set of the TV movie, TV miniseries Scarlet, where he played a, a, a Rhett, he was playing the, the, the character, oh, this was not Clark Gable part or whatever, Rhett, whatever, Rhett Butler. He officially announced his resignation from the role of James Bond on April 11, 1991. Uh, now, a couple of facts about Timothy Dalton. Uh, he, he was actually approached uh, to play uh, James Bond before, around the time of Honor Her Majesty's Secret Service, but he was 24, 25 at the time. And he felt he was way too young. He felt that Bond should be somebody in their 30s to early, late 30s to early 40s. Um, now, uh, on an episode of Charlie's Angels that he did in 1976 called Fallen Angel, he actually played a character named Damian Roth, who was described in the episode as being like James Bond. And that was eight years before he actually played James Bond. You know what I'm saying? Uh, his favorite Bond movies are the first three, uh, Dr. No from Russia with Love and Goldfinger. Uh, he, considered, he was actually considered at one point for the voice of Mufasa in The Lion King. 
which of course went to James Earl Jones. This is real shit. He actually was considered for We got a deep ass voice. You know what I'm saying? But, but it's, you know, it's James Earl Jones. Yeah, I, I got you. I, I feel you on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's actually the only Bond actor to have never been married. Uh, he's uh, he's uh, He's also he's also the last bar to smoke cigarettes. So, yeah. Now my uh, my favorite Bond movie of his is of course The Living Daylights, whereas James Bond is sent to investigate a KGB policy that is going to be killing enemy spies and also uncover an arms ring that could potentially have global ramifications. All the while he's uh, dealing with this young uh, Russian witness, you know, saying so this beautiful Russian uh, celloist. Yeah, so uh, facts about that movie. It's the last of the Bond, Bond movies to be scored by John Barry, who like did most of the scores for the Bond films. Those big sweeping scores with the horns and shit. Da, 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 all that shit that's associated with James Bond. John Barry came up with most of the shit. Yeah, all that shit, man. All, yeah, all the scores by themselves are just beautiful. Yeah. Um, this is also the last James Bond film that they used uh, an original James Bond title, original Ian Fleming title, until Casino Royale. Uh, that was about a gap of like, there's a gap of 20 years before they used another uh, Ian Fleming title again. Yeah. Uh, okay. This is the first, yeah, this is the first official Bond movie to not feature Lois Maxwell as Miss Moneypenny. She retired. Uh, apparently, Christopher Reeve actually turned down a million dollar offer by Kelvin Brockley to play Bond for this movie. That was uh, had, fun. <laughs> yeah. Had he accepted, he would have been the only American to play the role. Uh, <laughs> um, who was there? Was somebody else they offered around the time of uh, Roger Moore was an American actor. Oh, shit, uh, I got look that Adam up. West. Yeah, yeah. I Adam West. Him too. And he and thankfully he turned it down because he said, uh, "No, it's got to be. It's got to be a Brit. It's got to be a Brit. I'm not yeah, going to be a Brit." Yeah. That, you know what? I, it's something that I think doesn't get enough credit when it comes to actors, right? Because like we always talk about the roles that actors turn down tend to be the ones that they get judged by the most, right? Like if you turn down a box office smash hit, then that's a bigger problem than having made a bad movie. Yeah. But there's something that is great about this particular franchise that actors across the board seem so far to have at least been able to be honest enough to be like, no, that has to be... It's such a British character. It has to be somebody who's British or Scottish. We're not going to touch him. We can get into later, you know, the speculation about who the next Bond's going to be, but and some of the yeah. stuff that happens there. But that, that in and of itself, I think, speaks volumes about what this franchise means. Yeah. Uh, this movie also features the only deliberate nude scenes in any of any of the James Bond films other than the opening titles. There's two scenes. One where uh, there's a bomb, building being bombed out and two guys run out and they're showing their naked asses. And also, uh, there's one scene where he rips off the top of uh, the Russian guy's girlfriend, James Bond, and you see tits. So, so there's this, there's the two. You don't, you see like you see you see side boob and nipple, but it's, it's tit. So, <laughs> you should start a website. Huh? You should start a website with all the nude scenes. You see tit? I see tit. <laughs> <laughs> There's tit. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. That is actually not a bad idea. I see tit. I see tit. I think I'm <laughs> sure there is a website for that already. <laughs> I see tit. <laughs> 
right. Um, real quick, uh, Prince Charles and uh, Princess Diana actually visited the set of this movie, and actually they attended the royal premiere in 1987 at the Odeon. So, yeah, actually, uh, I think the one scene where Prince Charles actually contributes to the movie was the, the, the ghetto blaster scene. We had the stereo with the rocket launcher and the shit. Prince Charles is the one that fires the shit off screen. Crazy. <laughs> I love. I love. He says it's for the Americans. We call it a ghetto blaster. Look, that's one thing you got to say again about the Bond franchise is that it it is it is passed into another category beyond pop culture because mm-hmm. when they're announcing who the new Bond is, they get all kinds of concessions and assistance. In fact, if I remember right, when they. Uh, announced Daniel Craig. They had some SAS operators on a boat riding him over. I think it was outside of Parliament, if I remember. Hang on to that for, for the Daniel Craig part. I'm just saying, on, hang on to that. All right. Let's go ahead and get to the other bars first. The larger day. point is, is that they passed into a new category where they're, they're actually important. The James Bond franchise is important as a part of, honestly, national pride. It really is. Yes, it is. Like they had the whole thing where uh, James Bond is escorting the Queen at the Olympics, and then uh, apparently the biggest pop that they got in like any of the movies was in *The Spy Who Loved Me*, where he does the parachute shit, and then the parachute opens up and it's the Union Jack. Yeah. Apparently they went nuts for that shit in England. Well, so, you know what's crazy about that too? Tom was telling me, uh, if I remember, that's when he's on the skis, right? And he does uh, the thing yeah. on. So they used to get um, letters, and they probably still do, from people who did all kinds. In sports and stuff to the production company saying, hey. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, Rick Sylvester. Yeah, I know what you're about. So the guy who actually did that stunt was a letter writer, and so they wrote it in, and Tom said he was there at the premiere, and the guy, you know, he didn't, they don't let him watch the dailies, especially back then, because their process and all this stuff, it takes a couple of days to get the footage back to take a look. So the first time the guy had actually seen what it was he did was in yeah. theaters when they did the premiere, and Tom said the guy was like, holy shit. Like, yeah. believe how insane it looked to see himself doing that crazy, essentially base jumping using yeah. speeds. It was insane. That was the guy's name, Rick Sylvester. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. yeah so, all right, let's go ahead and get into the next Bond. Uh, Pierce Brosnan served as Bond from 1994 to 2004 uh, after Timothy Dalton retired. Uh, they needed a new actor again for uh, James Bond, so they picked Pierce Brosnan. He was offered a three-film contract. Uh, with the option for a fourth, the salary for his first movie, GoldenEye, was $4 million, which eventually rose to $16.5 million for his fourth and final movie, Die Another Day. Now, he actually, funny enough, he has a connection to the Bond franchise before he became Bane's Bond because, of fact, his ex-wife, well, his late wife, Cassandra Harris, was actually a Bond girl in For, uh, for Your Eyes Only. She's a Countess Liesel von Schloff. That was Pierce Brosnan's wife. And that's where he first met the Broccoli's was uh, uh, at the premiere of that movie. And they looked at Pierce and saw how handsome he was. I'm like, you know, he, he might be a good Bond. I'm alive. Look, I, I, like, I like Pierce Brosnan. My favorite movie of his is, is Dante's Peak. Like, he's, yeah. he's a killer actor. He's done a lot of good stuff. But as far as James Bond goes, after Goldeneye, it was just a downward trend for me. I got you. Now, um, one of the reasons they picked him, like, actually, a lot of people consider Pierce Brosnan to be one of the quintessential Bond actors in both appearance and manner, uh, displaying the airness of cool, playing an air of coolness, 
elegance and grace that made him very believable as an international playboy, if not purely as an assassin. Now, um, they actually had, had a comment in terms of how strikingly handsome Pierce Brosnan is. When Sean Connery or Pierce Brosnan enters a room, everyone notices. And thus, it is ridiculous to suppose that James Bond, looking like that, would be a secret agent for any more than two seconds. Look, here's what I'm going to say about Pierce Brosnan, right? And we've had this conversation. It's, it's totally askew. I'm not going to go all the way down into it. But Pierce Brosnan is the guy who can play Bruce Wayne. He has, yeah. he has that air of sophistication. There's something there where, like, the way he plays his parts and everything, you, you listen to him, you watch him, and you go, there's, there's so much that could be hiding under the surface. Like, I can believe that he's a billionaire savant playboy. Like, I, I can get there. Um, yeah. The Bond problem for me, once again, was he, uh, he didn't have the bastard quality. True. He never, never, never had it for a moment. Like, I, he, he was always a guy It's like, if at any point in time, I felt like if he were to really spin the woman so she gets shot and he walks away, or, or if he had to get information out of her or something, like, I watch him as, as Adam going, no, I don't think so. If he did that, like, it would destroy the core of his being. You know what I mean? Yeah, I will say this about Pierce Brosnan. Him and Tom Cruise have two of the best pump arm runs of any white actors I've ever seen. In life. That, that I will give. They they can run like a motherfucker. <laughs> I'm always going, boy. <laughs> that should be going, boy. <laughs> now, they said about uh, Pierce Brosnan's characterization, they felt it was closer to Fleming's uh, novels than more, but lighter and less intense than Dalton. Uh, and then also, he, uh, Pierce Brosnan himself is the one that kind of got rid of James Bond's smoking habit. He said, you know what, I don't give a damn about anybody's, uh, anybody else's perception of the character. I think smoking causes cancer, therefore my Bond does not smoke. I'm going to still blame, uh, still going to blame Rob Reiner, because he's got everyone in Hollywood going. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, Pierce Brosnan ended up doing four movies, uh, GoldenEye. Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, and Die Another Day. Now, after four, uh, four, uh, four films in his role, he actually stated he wanted to do one more Bond movie. But, again, negotiations, negotiations and legal shit got in the way and stalled the production, and he actually intended, he announced his intention to leave the role in July of 2004. Well, if I remember, I was around the time of another sale for MGM, so it was, there was a lot of stuff that was going on with that there. Because around the time Timothy Dalton took over, that was, uh, if my memory serves, I was around the same time that I think, um, I think Ted Turner was offloading a lot of stuff at MGM. So when it comes to the distribution angle, that impacts and hits the economics in a way where they're not going to be able to, to get anything taken care of from the distribution side. So that hammers you where you don't have a production you know, budget to actually go and do anything. If you don't have distribution, there's no point in production. So you're not going to get the loan. You're not going to get the money from anybody. Yeah. All right. So some on Pierce Brosnan facts. Uh, the very first movie he fa- he said he ever saw in the theater was Goldeneye. And at that point, it was one of the roles that made him decide he wanted to take a back. So, uh, he was voted Sexiest Man Alive by People Magazine in 2001. Uh, in addition to his salary for his James Bond movies, he actually received a car for each of the movies he was in. Uh, he got a BMW Z3 for Goldeneye. You got a eight uh, series BMW uh, for Tomorrow Never Dies and a BMW Z8 for uh, The World Is Not Enough. If you're James Bond, you'd be an Aston Martin. <laughs> what is this? You got BMWs, man. 
Well, each of the movies he was in. He's got uh, for German autos, or he needs to fire his agent. <laughs> uh, he said his uh, he said his favorite Bond movies are from Russia with Love. That's a big favorite of most of the actors. That's uh, great. From Russia with Love, and for your eyes only, because of the whole thing with his wife is in it. And also, his least favorite Bond film is On Her Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, according to the official James Bond tailors in London, who apparently did all the suits for all the actors, Pierce Brosnan was the lightest and also the heaviest actor to play Bond both at the same time. When he did Goldeneye, he weighed 164 pounds, making him the lightest actor. When he did Die Another Day, he he weighed 211 pounds, making him the heaviest actor. Well, he's making more money, so. (laughs) Yeah, he's a little bit healthier, man. Uh, per his contract, uh, after he was chosen to play James Bond, Pierce Brosnan was not allowed to wear a tuxedo on any other film project. Uh, well, and if I understand correctly, they, they did the same thing with Craig. That's part of the, the new deal. They don't want you to be appearing in a tuxedo, like with a bow tie and the whole nine. Uh, yeah, the whole James uh, Bond get down, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he is the third actor to play James Bond in more than two films, along with uh, Sean Connery and Roger Moore. The fourth, of course, is Daniel Craig. Uh, to date, he's the only Bond actor to have technically never appeared in a Bond film based on an Ian Fleming story or novel, because all his shit was original. So. And that's probably part of where the problem came from. I mean, look, Gold, GoldenEye was a was a great Bond film. The whole thing with the the pen and you know the the radio tower, the uh, the radio dish blowing up at the end, like it was it was interesting. Like they did a good job. They didn't get too crazy with it, but yeah. it was a slippery. Yeah, and also this is a crazy fact I didn't realize either until I watched the movie again. Uh, of all the movies that he made, uh, ex- with the exception of Gold, Golden Eye is the only one of his movies where he does not end the movie laying on top of the female lead in the final shot of the film. Hmm. He doesn't in all the other movies except Golden Eye. Hmm. Yeah, and in Golden Eye they just go off in a helicopter, whereas uh, he's with uh, the Asian Jake uh, Michelle Yeoh and. Uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. He's with uh, Denise Richards and uh, The World Is Not Enough. And he's with, uh, what's her name, Halle Berry and uh, Die Another Day. All, all on top of all chicks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Halle Berry, Halle, James, James Bond. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, uh, my best film for him, I don't know if you have anything different, uh, Goldeneye. Right there with you. Goldeneye. Goldeneye, okay, cool. So the synopsis of Goldeneye, uh, years after a friend and fellow double O was killed, uh, a space station, a secret space-based weapon called Goldeneye is stolen. James Bond says it's time to stop this Russian crime syndicate from using the weapon from the final his friend's life, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's actually a really good movie. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely, like I said, definitely the best of his movies. For sure, without question. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, this is the first completely original James Bond movie with no reference to any Ian Fleming story or short. The first, this is the first James Bond movie ever released on DVD. Uh, it was the first James Bond movie to be made after the downfall of the Cold War, which is a huge part of the old Bond movies. Yeah, I mean, Russia is always somehow or another potentially in the background as a bad guy in the other ones. I, I, just a quick question on this one. I couldn't remember. Maybe you, maybe you can jog my memory on it, but... I think so, it's the first one that really had a computer hacker in it. Like an actual hacker. There was computers and like an outer space computer and things, but that whole thing with the computer hacker yeah. with the pen and the password it's, stuff, like this is the first time they really got into any kind of like computer hacking. Nothing. Computer hacking. Yeah. That's true. That is true. 
this is the first Bond film to actually shoot in Russia, St. Petersburg. Uh, exactly, actually. Uh, uh, Goldeneye, of course, is the uh, name of the estate that uh, Ian Fleming owned in Jamaica, where he wrote all of his Bond novels. Uh, so he kind of. Say that again. It was a gold-plated typewriter he wrote on as well. <laughs> you really like gold, man. <laughs> uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. This is the first uh, Bond film, of course, to feature, feature a woman as M, Dame Judi Dench. Uh, this is the last Bond film viewed by Albert Broccoli before he passed away. Uh, at this point, uh, to one point, it was actually the most successful James Bond movie of all time until uh, Casino Royale. Uh, this is the only Bond movie where James M. This Money Penny were all recast with different actors and actresses. The only holdover was Desmond Llewellyn and his Q. Yeah, and also uh, uh, J uh, Pierce Brosnan is the very last James Bond actor that was actually cast by Albert Hubby Broccoli. So, kudos to Pierce Brosnan. Mm -hmm. Now, the last one we're going to talk about tonight, and this this is pretty much going to be the end of it. Daniel Craig, the current James Bond, who's been Bond since 2005, and as of this year, is now the longest serving James Bond of all time. 14, what, like, what, like 605, about 15 years. Yep. Which arguably they hung on to him the longest, so. Yeah, uh, uh, the, long, the, the one who had the record before Daniel Craig was Roger Moore. He was Bond for 12 years. But Roger Moore made more movies. That's true, but I mean, part of it comes down to like we we're talking about for financing. And look, James Bond movies are nothing but get more expensive. Because this, the big, the big thing, and this is what again, what I really love about the current iteration, the way they're going. This is a point in time in filmmaking where the majority of what you see with big budget action films is going to end up being a lot of CGI, a lot of green screen. They do almost everything practical in camera effects. I mean, even. Casino Royale, that opening sequence with the fight on the crane. Mm -hmm. that, that's parkour. Those, those are stunt actors doing everything practical effect in camera. That is, that is insane to look at. So, of course, it's going to cost more. It's going to take a hell of a lot longer. Yeah. Now, uh, in 2005, Daniel Craig was actually contacted by Ian Productions about playing James Bond. He was initially unsure and, and resistant to the, the overtures. They actually, apparently, Bob Rocket said they actually had to woo him. In terms of like getting him to do the part, because well, in fact he. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, it's actually during the same time. Apparently, Daniel Craig got a lot of advice from his friends and colleagues, and most of them said to him, "Dude, like, there's life after Bond. Do Bond." So. Well, and I was going to say, I mean, for those of us that, that remember, right, because we were growing up around the same time, we're paying attention to pop culture. When they finally announced, one of the things that he ran up against the hardest was everybody didn't like him specifically for his look, right? I mean, he'd done yeah. Tomb Raider and a few other things. In fact, one of my favorites that I think he'd done a little before then was um, uh, Munich, right? So a mm -hmm. lot of stuff, they were saying he looks like he should be the villain in the James Bond film because he's a blue-eyed blonde guy. He looks more Russian or more German than, than English or something. Plus, I mean, you know, again, talking about uh, how attractive some of the different guys are that play Bond, He's yeah. got a really decent face on him, right? I mean, he, he's an attractive enough guy that he starts to fall back into that, uh, you know, Sean Connery, Pierce Brosnan thing where it's like, how the hell are you a secret agent? Everybody's looking at you as soon as you walk in the room. 
My my one gripe with Daniel Craig when I first saw him as Bond was that he tended to mumble. I didn't like that. See, my my only my only thing going into it was I was honestly I was burnt out on the Bond franchise because of all those problems we've gone over at nauseum at this point with the Brosnan. Yeah. And yeah. so I was more just I was more just at a point where I was like, oh man, they've lost anything that's interesting to me about James Bond. Yeah. Now, Daniel Craig, so he, was, he stated when he first got cast, he was aware of the challenges of the Bond franchise, which he considered basically a big machine that makes a lot of money. But he wanted to bring emotional depth to the character of James Bond. Now, on October 14th, 2005, uh, Eon Productions did a big, big uh, press conference, which you were alluding to before, where they had Daniel Craig ride in on a uh, Royal Navy speedboat, uh, dressed in a tuxedo and a life jacket. And they introduced him to the world as the new James Bond. Now, like you said, like you said, let's be clear too. The life jacket he's wearing. We're not talking about the kind of stuff you put on if you go out on a on a boat with your uncle or something. This was the same kind of like a it's a specialty inflation one that that uh, Navy SEALs in our in our uh, military would wear. The SAS over there would wear. So it's very sleek and smaller and everything, and it can inflate if you needed to. So he cut a very intimidating and dashing figure when he when he made that press reveal. Yeah. They said the really thing, the thing that really made him wanted to accept the roles when he read this, the screenplay of Casino Royale. He said, uh, once I sat down and read the story, I thought it was just something I wanted to tell. I'm a big Bond fan, and I really want, and I really love what that, uh, that story and he represents. And I like you're talking about, there were a lot of, uh, there's a lot of hesitation to Daniel Craig and James Bond. Actually, they actually had a website, DanielCraigIsNotBond.com. <laughs> To express the dissatisfaction with James Bond, and they, uh, like I said, mainly because of the fact he was short. He's five foot ten. He's five foot ten. He's the shortest of the Bond actors, and because of his blonde hair, they called him James Blonde. And then it, I think one story in the Daily Mirror actually ran a front page story said the name's Bland, James Bland. <laughs> Did they turn out to be wrong? Right. They turned out to be so fucking wrong. <laughs> in fact, uh, in fact, on one uh, uh, critic for Variety actually said, Craig comes closer to the author's original conception of this exceptionally long-lived male fantasy figure than anyone since Sean Connor. Uh, Craig, once uh, for all, claims the character as his own. Well, look, so this was this is what I was alluding to before. So Tom was telling us that uh, about the time this film came out, he was driving uh, through Hollywood and he got flagged down by this black SUV that was driven by Barbara Broccoli because she saw him driving down. And they knew each other from way back when, because back when Tom was was writing for those movies, um, she was on as a PA and worked her way up from Bob. She's she's one of those people who, even though, you know, she obviously she gets her first job as a PA because of who her dad is, she literally, she didn't just plug in and, hey, I'm a producer at 19. This is somebody who worked their way up. So she wanted his opinion. She'd known him. And she asked him. Oh, go ahead. So, so she's the film equivalent of Stephanie McMahon. Yeah, for sure. And and so she asked him, so, well, what do you what do you think? Because, again, her father died. This is the first time she's cast a James Bond. This is her first, you know, really big new kind of conceptualizing of the James Bond character. And he said, you know what? This is the closest that I've ever seen anyone get to. This is what your dad and I were always trying to do. That was that was his his take on it. So from a guy who was there at the beginning and and was there for a long time, to say something like that, I mean that—that's got to sell it on something. Whether whether you like him or not, you got to know that's what they were trying to do. 
Uh, I got a couple other uh, criticisms here. Steven Spielberg, who we both know is a huge Bond fan. In fact, he created the Indiana Jones franchise because, in fact, he wanted to do his own version of James Bond. And and he ended up casting Connery in uh, Last Crusade because he needed James Bond. As, as, James Bond. as Bond's father. <laughs> as Bond's father, yep. It's funny. Uh, he actually called Craig the perfect 21st century Bond. And another critic said that Dan Craig is not a good Bond. He's a great Bond. Specifically... He is 007 as conceived by Ian Fleming, a professional killing machine, a charming, cold-hearted patriot with a taste for luxury. Craig is the first actor to truly nail 007's defining characteristic. He's an absolute swine. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Swine. I love that shit. Okay, so uh, this is some Daniel Craig facts. His first four Bond uh, movies uh, that he has done have earned a combined $3.5 billion globally, making him the highest grossing of all the Bond actors. Uh, He is the first blonde actor to play James Bond, and also he's the first actor born after the start of the franchise. He's also the first one born after the death of Ian Fleming. So, and all this is before 1964. Yeah, he, four of the past actors, Sean Connery, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, and Pierce Brosnan have all indicated that Daniel Craig is a great choice for James Bond. 100%. Uh, yeah, after filming Casino Royale and after, uh, well, apparently, yeah, after filming Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, he actually had his body insured for $9.5 million. I think with Lords of, Lloyds of London. I was going to say that might be a little bit uh, low considering what he gets paid for each one of those movies. But. Oh my God, yeah, exactly. Uh, Craig has stated that his own personal favorite, uh, Bond actor is Sean Connery. Uh, he, this is Dan Craig. I've never, uh, I'd never copy any. I never copy somebody else. Uh, I would never do an impression of anybody else or try to improve on what they did. It'd be a pointless uh, gesture for me. That's how good he thinks Sean Connery is. Yeah. And again, his favorite Bond film, from Russia with Love. That is consistent with all these guys. Everyone's favorite film is from Russia with Love. No question. It is a great film. Like I say, if you haven't get a chance to watch from Russia with Love. Watch it. It's Bond right before it gets weird with the gadgets and shit. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, right at its core. And that's what, again, for me, why I, I fell back in love with the franchise with, with Craig's iteration. We went back to Bond before gadgets because there's not really any gadgets and anything until you start getting later. Like exactly. We, and we were barely, barely getting into it at all with Spectre anyway. I mean, Skyfall, there's not really any gadgets. Most things he's got is the little homing device well, and watch. Well, the gun, yeah, the gun and the radio. <laughs> <laughs> They even, they even say it in the movie, like, yeah, my gadgets. The the the, the signature gun that had his, that his palm recognition thing, so nobody could fire it but him, and the little radio thing. So he's like, a gun and a radio. Not exactly Christmas. He's, the cue's like, we expect an exploding pin. <laughs> we don't really do anything. <laughs> we don't really go for that anymore. <laughs> I, like that. I like that line. Well, there, but there's a lot of good little jokes in there where they kind of jab at some of the things in the past that seem a little campy or a little, you know, comic now. Yeah, and also since we're talking a lot about the whole Brit aspect of Bond, Daniel Craig is only the second English actor to play James Bond. The first is Roger Moore, and like everyone's like, yeah, the, the second, yeah, he's only the second. Fucking Sean Connery is Scottish. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Lazenby is Australian. Timothy Dalton is Welsh. Apparently, there's a difference. And uh, Pierce Brosnan is Irish. Yeah. No. But he's the bad guy Irish. Do you know anything about the difference between a regular Brit and a Welshman? 
Yeah, it's uh, about um, 40 miles. <laughs> yeah, that's the only other thing. That's the west, from, from what I recall. So. Yeah, uh, he is the first. Uh, he is the first actor in the James Bond franchise to be nominated for a BAFTA for playing James Bond. But again, like that, this is what I was talking about. I know we're about to get to this, but I'm just going to jump in a little bit right now. My favorite yeah. of all of his is Casino Royale, and again, it's because for me it reignited my love of of the franchise and kind of where they were going with it and what what's great about it and why he was able to finally, I think. Um, break that that barrier to be able to get that recognition as as an actor playing James Bond um, is that hyper realism you have going on. I mean, there's a lot of crazy physicality that goes into the fight sequences um, and some of the chase sequences that he's involved in, but there's still a ton of emotional pay dirt that's actually involved in the story. I mean, even as you're kind of watching him progress, right? What's different about this from all the other ones, you have him coming in essentially as a, a new spy, right? He's not, he's not a double O because he hasn't gotten his first two kills, but you watch his first two kills in that opening sequence, at which point he's essentially graduated from what, from an outsider would look like maybe a training program to now yeah. he's operational as a double O. He's in that program for MI6. So now that he's an MI6 operative, you're going to watch him have to make mistakes and he makes mistakes with the relationships he's in, the people he trusts or doesn't trust until yeah. by the end, He's at that place that, that we always know and love James Bond for, which is the only thing that, that matters to him, the only thing that he really cares about is king and country, right? Like he's, he is a hyper patriot and that's the core of his being. And that's why, I mean, we get it, you can get into some interesting stuff about the parental kind of sort of thing that, that M plays to him, especially it comes yeah. out of Skyfall. But the most part of the core of his being that you have there is that he's that guy who despite whatever flaws he's got, it's essentially all redeemed through his never-ending, undying love for, for his country and his willingness to take care of, of his team, so to speak. That's why they say the James Bond, James Bond for the very end, to feel like he earned it. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll give you that. Uh, some facts about, and actually since we're talking about it, um, and I'm going to reiterate again, uh, when he confirmed in 2019, uh, Daniel Craig officially became the longest serving James Bond actor of all time. Uh, again, his best movie, Casino Royale. Brief uh, synopsis, after earning his 00 status and license to kill, James Bond sets off on his first mission as 007. Uh, he has to defeat a private banker funding terrorists in a high-stakes game of poker in Casino Royale, Montenegro. <laughs> Which, now, Dan Craig, one thing I'll, I'll give to a, a buddy of mine who, it was a good critique, right? So because we're in 21st century, America and world now, you mm -hmm. have playing Texas Hold'em right, when he's playing poker. Whereas yeah. if you go to an Ian Fleming novel, he'd more likely be playing like Baccarat or something like that. Some kind of a crazy yeah. European. Yeah, exactly. So it's just like that's the only only critique that I've heard that I was like I felt like landed. So I feel like it's worth reiterating. And I was like, yeah, maybe it probably should have been if it was going to stay totally true to it. But then again, you're going to try to explain the rules of that fucking game in a. Yeah, yeah, cot. All I know is the cot. <laughs> and then, the, and then uh, the thing that has the cards is called the shoe. That's yeah. all I know. That's what, but everybody knows poker for the most part. I mean, World Series of Poker is all like, Cot. Card me. Somebody gets the card and shit. Yeah. 20, 25. You know, some shit like, yeah, you never, I don't know the rules of, of Baccarat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, all right. So uh, Dan Craig was actually, like we mentioned before, was Barbara Broccoli's first choice for Bond. And apparently she really had him in mind after seeing him in Layer Cake, which I was, I, which I was surprised you didn't mention. Uh, but yeah, Layer Cake was, oh, Layer Cake was a pretty good movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is the first film in the Bond franchise that shows Bond as a rookie in my 6 Pretty much in all the other movies, he had basically been a spy for a long time. Uh, Dan Craig actually gained 20 pounds of muscle for this movie, adhering to mo- eating mostly proteins, minimizing his carbohydrates, training five days a week, and only doing cardio exercises on weekends. Uh, to prepare for the role, uh, Daniel Craig actually read all of the, Bond, the original Ian Fleming Bond novels and talked to some of the uh, advisors on the movie Munich that he knew who were actual Mossad and British Secret Service agents. Mm-hmm. So, so we talked about Munich. His very first day as James Bond was actually the scene where he storms the African embassy. Mm-hmm. That was his very first day as Bond. It's a great first day. Uh, <laughs> it's a very hell of a first day. Great scene, too. Yeah. Uh, the first James, is, this is the first James Bond movie to be based uh, on a full length uh, Ian Fleming novel since Moonraker. <laughs> Yeah, because a lot of the other ones were based on the short stories, like For Your Eyes Only is a short story, Octopus is a short story, The Living Daylights is a short story, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. Uh, also, as of 2020, it still remains the last James Bond film to be based directly on the movie. They've done them all. Yeah. Well, actually, there's a couple of short stories they have not done yet. Uh, I think it's like Risico. The property of a lady, and uh, the Hildebrand rarity. Those are the only ones that have not been adapted to film yet. However, uh, elements of certain of those stories have been put in other ones, like the whole thing with the uh, and for your eyes only, where they do the shit where they uh, tied up on a boat, and like you know they, they do the whole shit where they drag them off the boat with the sharks and shit. That was from recently. Okay. And also the shit with the Faraday eggs and octopusy. If you remember the name of the uh, egg, it's called the property of a lady. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they've mentioned, they've done little shits of each one, but they haven't done a full bl- full blown thing of them yet. So, yeah. And also this, as of 1990, as a, excuse me, as of uh, 2007, this was the highest grossing James Bond film of all time until it was surpassed by Skyfall. And that is it for me. One, one, one more thing I want to throw out there before we, we wrap this up. So the bigger change that I think we've seen uh, since Barbara Broccoli's had full run of things here and, and that's shifting, I feel like a lot of people tend to miss. She's actually kind of changed the, the role of uh, women specifically in James Bond's world, right? So obviously having Dame Judi Dench as M is going to make her a more full and well-rounded character, right? Because now you've got a situation with responsibility, right? Because if you go back to the early James Bond films, the early trope, right? The the chick at best, if she's active, she's maybe a henchman, she's trying to foil him. At worst, she's some chick that he knocks up and runs off, or you know, she's basically there to hold the bag while he goes on the adventure. Even with the way that we're seeing the new iteration of, of Money Penny, Mm-hmm. he's an active participant that scene in skyfall when they have the, sh- the shootout in the courtroom right there's this yeah. kind of fuller character arc that's occurring for other characters that normally be per- uh, peripheral 
And I think that in general is something that has kind of expanded um, James Bond, not only in terms of the potential for audience participation and audience getting involved and being more excited about it, but it's also um, created something that's, again, pushing back to more of a hyper-realism. Because there's one thing I, I always remember, um, Alex Rose was, was one of my teachers. She was telling us to talk about good or bad writing. And this would have been probably like 12 years ago at this point. Um, the really bad, bad writing, and you get a shit ton of it, um, it always ends up coming from uh, a male-centric point of view where the guy goes on the adventure and at best the chick's along to carry the bag, right? She's never, she's never an active participant. What she does doesn't really matter except for if she maybe screws something up for the, the guy that's in the lead. And I think it's really kind of fun and important. It makes it for a, a better story overall that now you've seen a shift in arguably the most male-centric property in the world, James Bond, where you now have some of these female characters that are coming along and they're, they're active participants. They're actively producing stuff that matters in a positive way. You also can have them being a foil in a negative way, but that whole thing, even all the way back to the beginning, right? Where you have, have Eve as Vesper, that whole, whole timeline of everything that she was doing behind the scenes or she's good, but then is she bad? That, that multi-layered thing that has kind of, I think, breathed a new life into the franchise. Um, yeah. one last thing I'll, I'll toss out here that's worth a conversation is the discussion about who the next Bond is going to be. Oh, yeah. That's uh, it's been a lot of, there's been a few names that have been thrown out, the two or well, three of the more prevalent ones that I've heard. Uh, Tom Hardy, Henry Cavill, and Tom Hiddleston. You're missing Those are the three I've heard the most. But you're missing one, and this is the one that I thought was the most ridiculous. Idris Elba. Oh, Idris Elba, yeah. Well, I, I, well, I was going to go that route, but at the same time, it was like... No, but what, here's what I mean when I say ridiculous. It's people freaking out about it. Cause I, and I'll, I'll admit, like, we, there, was a, there was a girl who was in the, my program, my producing program. Um, it was the first time I'd ever heard, heard anybody say this, and it, it took me back for a second. I had to think about it. Because uh, when she was introducing herself, she tells, she tells everyone that she's, um, uh, she's English but her parents are from Nigeria. And so for me, when I hear someone say they're English, I automatically assume, you know, pasty white or pasty white woman, because that's just... Yeah, 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 I guess, I guess. But the reality is, out of all the different actors I think they've kicked around, and the longer they wait, the harder it gets, because getting older, Idris yeah. I think has the best physicality and the best camera presence. And honestly, aside from people sticking to the idea that the only way to be English is being a pasty white man, <laughs> He's a hell of a great English actor. He's from England. He's got his production company set up over there. He can play anything across the board. Um, he's got a ton of chops when it comes to being able to carry the franchise. And other than it being one of those things where it's like people want to see essentially the same shit they've been watching for 40 plus years at this point or 50 years, there's no reason not to go with him. You know what I mean? I, I'm with you on a lot of that, but at the same time, I'm kind of a purist when it comes to like certain roles. No, uh, no, 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 no. Like I, I love you, Joseph. I think he's a fantastic actor. I think, be, I think he should have won the uh, ship, the Oscar for like the shit, uh, Beast of No Nations. Yeah, I, was... I think he should have won. I think he should have won for that shit. Now, my thing with him and Bond, realistically, he's actually more English than, like I said, most of the actors that are played. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like I think he's uh, actually, I think he's actually from England. I don't think he's Wallister. Yeah. Yeah, he is actually from England. Yeah, like I said, like I said, if he did it, he would be the third, only the third English actor to play James Bond. Uh, but my thing is this, like, 
I don't know. I just don't. I just don't, I'm not not feeling him specifically as James Bond. Like I would be. Like, I think he'd be, like he like he would be cool. You can give him his own spy franchise, but specifically as James Bond, just leave shit as is. Like I don't like. I'm not crazy on the whole you know uh, blending race thing or whatever. Like I'm, I'm not saying that I, I, I agree with that shit. I'm out of the shit. Be careful. But. <laughs> I'm being, I'm being very careful here. Uh, but uh, I just don't think uh, Idris Elba should be. Uh, well, but again, this is this is where, where I'm sticking on it, right? So I, as, a, as a fanboy, when it comes down to James Bond specifically, the only, the only thing that matters to me is I, I want them to be, to be English. So when it says English, for me, that's going to include, I'm going to just say the British Isles, right? So it'll include everything from Skyland. Uh, I'll include my friends from Ireland over there as well, my family from Ireland. But if you're from that section, that'll work. Secondly, can you carry the character? Do you have that bastard quality? And the thing I'm going to throw out to, to prove that Idris Elba has the bastard quality was Stringer Bell on the wire. He's already proven. Oh, yeah, he definitely has, oh, he definitely has the bastard quality. Right. Like, he, has, uh, he uh, got with uh, DeAndre's girl. Yeah, yeah with DeAngelo. when DeAngelo's in the can, he's, yeah, he he's, he's got that ability. And you still don't hate him when you see him in the next scene. He's he's got a layered ability, and I'm sorry, maybe I maybe I just haven't seen the right right film yet. But the other three you listed, they're not they're not there for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I mean, that's, I mean, that's what I'm looking at when it comes down to it. Then he checks the box because he's English and he can carry that bastard quality. Uh, I guess we'll just have to see. We might have to disagree yeah. on this, but like I, I, either way, he's a fantastic actor. If he does yeah. do James Bond. On power to him, but like I said, like just like you said, he's getting up there, so I don't think he should be. Yeah, like, I mean, that's the biggest problem with him right now is if you get him, you'll get three movie stops because he's getting too old. Maybe exactly. he'd be more likely to. What you need is you need somebody who's between the ages of like twenty six and thirty three, so you can get you know a good five or six movies out of him. I'm just more of a fan of like I think he would be good in a James Bond like role. Just give him a like. You know, on the original role as opposed to taking some other shit because like all the controversy that comes with it and all the purists are gonna be like looking like he's not James Bond, he's not my James Bond. Just give him another role to fucking let him let him grow his own shit. That's just me. I mean, look, uh, there's nothing wrong if he goes that way too. I, again, I think the biggest problem if he goes that way is that it's gonna be more short lived. I mean, like, at the end of the day, when it comes to the spy genre, there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with coming up with something new. The only thing that's wrong is if you beat it to death and ruin it, like happened with the uh, the Bourne franchise, right? True. Like, it was a great, like, the born Identity was killer. Supremacy was starting to get a little ultimatum. It's like, okay, I know how this ends. And then, you know, born Legacy was trash. Legacy was just garbage. And by that point, it's like, oh, we can secretly control your mind and make you do mass shootings and shit. And I'm like, okay, we kind of lost it, guys. Like, this is your or, or you take pills and become, like, a superhero or some shit like that. Yeah, you're, you're super smart and a, and a super assassin. Yeah, so that's that. Um, but yeah, this has been, like I said, one of our more spirited and more fun recordings, and this is actually one of our longer ones too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is a character that really deserves it. So, like, one hundred percent. I've enjoyed every second of this, man. I really have. So. Yeah, me too. And I'll, yeah, like I said, I was gonna say I'm also doing a corresponding series of articles with the material that we've done from this uh, interview uh, for GodHatesGeeks.com. I'm doing the whole thing on Bond for. Uh, I have quite a few of them. So uh, it's going to be basically the stuff that we discussed here, but just split into different sections. Uh, but I really enjoyed this. And like it's, I was telling AJ earlier, I have a similar character that would love for us to do. And then I also have like kind of like a, 
almost like a stepchild of Tom Mankiewicz yeah. uh, with me. That he could throw some Bondian ideas in there. And we could, I think we can make something really good. I think we can make really special right now. For sure. So, yeah. But uh, I, we really hope you guys have enjoyed this Bond-centric uh, version of Dropping That Culture with JD and AJ. Until next time, uh, this has been Dropping That Culture again with JD and AJ. I'm JD. And I'm AJ. And Dropping That Culture will return next week. And next week, it's going to be awesome. We're doing uh, wrestling. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot to announce our next. Uh, uh, to announce our next uh, segment, we are going to be doing our very first podcast with guests. We're going to have guests, uh, two guests, one, from, one guest for me, one guest for AJ. And we're going to be discussing the Monday Night Wars mm-hmm. uh, WCW versus WWF slash WWE in the 90s. The ratings war that went in for basically the late nineties, like before, like ninety six, like around like two thousand one. But we're going to be discussing the major events and that particular thing with some guests who are also big fans of the same genre. And guys, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be off the chain. I know we're going to be going deep into that shit. So, like I said, stay tuned next week. It's going to be dope, man. Yes, it's gonna it's gonna kick ass. And, and just wait till you meet uh, meet Tyler and Flobo. It's going to be awesome. Oh, yeah, those, those are two different cats. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, we'll see you next week, okay? Dropping that coach. 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 Dropping that coach.